and welcome to the Survivor Historians, the only Survivor podcast that did not play football at Central Michigan. Um, as always, I'm Mario Lanza. I'm Jay Fisher, and I'm Platinum. And I'm Mike Bloom, and if someone tries to call me out, I'm just going to say, that's not me. That's not me? <laughs> oh my god, we're in Guatemala! <laughs> <laughs> now we're doing it like the Maya. This, oh my god, I have so... Oh, don't, don't you can't run on that, but oh my god, we we finally reached Gary Hogaboom. This is like the greatest moment of my life ever. <laughs> this is um, Guatemala. I've said before is the season I've probably watched the least, and it's one of those things. It's not because I hate it. Like seasons that I hate, I'll tend to watch a lot just to remind myself of why I hate them. Guatemala is one of those I just didn't remember a lot of stuff about it. It always kind of fell into the gray zone of seasons I neither like nor hate so it's been really fun to watch it the last couple of weeks and, and get reacquainted with things like uh um without spoiling where we're going to go on the podcast things like judd uh saying things where he has 52 to 55 words in a single sentence just things like little things stuff like that so it's great to be back and great to be uh working with you guys again even though uh i'm really troubled when uh, mike introduces himself because he gets so gay it's so gay <laughs> I, I, I well, you don't. You guys don't know this, but I actually had my legs in the air the entire time when I was recording my part of that. <laughs> look, th- look, Mike. There's a way to win. You know what I mean. And and that and you did not display it today. Listen, we, we you know up up north in Connecticut, we have we ha- we have to we have to show ourselves. We have a we have a, we're just you know we're we're crazy. Look, so Alabama and Georgia, we got a bit of a rival going yeah. on. So Mike's a little blue state for us. Yeah, Mike's I'm, I'm, a, little, think- I'm a little. Yeah, I'm old Brian Corden. Jesus. You're not going to thank Jesus for the podcast like we are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yes, we are here on Survivor 11, Survivor Guatemala, and uh, we are going to do something a little different with this podcast. I know we did this with Thailand where I let Jay run the podcast. And uh, with this one, with Guatemala, we're going to do something new and we're going to hand it over to the temp. So I'm officially going to hand the baton over to Paul here. Oh, I'm sorry, Mike. It's and uh, let, let you run with it. So... Take it away, Temp, and we'll just pipe in as needed. Oh, boy. Don't mess right. this up, Mike. Oh, God. Oh, geez. I'm going to be the most successful leader since Jolanda Jones. Uh, we're here, guys. We That's are in. That's a loud joke. Yeah, that was this the wrong Guatemala. season, Temp. This is uh, bad for you already. Oh, God. This is one, the one with Bross and Rob, right? <laughs> you know, not a bad guess. So, uh, <laughs> That's true. partial credit. <laughs> so, here we are, guys. We are at Survivor Guatemala. Survivor has officially started its second decade so i guess before we like jump into the actual episodes itself we could probably talk a little bit about uh before the season and the the publicity because i know a question we've received as a whole throughout this little off season after we finished our palau podcast was how did the survivor community react to the whole twist of bobby john and stephanie coming back and the interesting thing is that some People may not know this, which would be a reason why you're listening to this, but uh, the, the fact that Bobby, John, and Stephanie were coming back really wasn't revealed until, what, like two weeks before the season premiered? Is that right? It, yeah, that's correct. It was, I don't know the specific timeline, but it was very close to when the season premiered. And what was funny is they didn't actually flat out say that they were players. They just said that they were involved in there and they were like mentors on the team. It was never spelled out explicitly that they were actual players until, if I recall, when the episode aired on TV. 
Yeah, and there there were also some rumors that like you know there were rumors among the spoiler community that two people would come back, and some people were speculating that it would it would be Wanda and Jonathan from the previous season. There was a rumor going around that it was Mike Scoopin and Roger Bingham, going with the ever popular theory that Mike Scoopin was was an alternate for every single season. But I don't, I don't know how many people were throwing out Bobby, John, and Stephanie as a possibility. I tried to start a rumor that it was Gene and Zoe, but that didn't fly. <laughs> <laughs> we were just working harder than everyone else. <laughs> Yeah, Jean was too busy winning at life. She didn't have time to come back. But yes, what Mike is saying is true, that it was, you'd think for something this big in Survivor history, where it was the first time returning players would play against normal players, you'd think that would be a big draw, but it was absolutely not hyped at all. It was kind of slipped in there right before the episodes first started airing. They buried it, and what's funny with them burying it is sort of like what Mike pointed out. It's not like, it's not like Palau happened and they just said, okay, I have an idea, Johnson. Let's get Bobby, John, and Stephanie, the two sort of popular oolongs, and let's bring them back next season. Let's do this right now. Cool, cool. It, as, as was talked about, they were thinking of having two people from a previous Survivor come back. And, you know, the rumors are around, but there is some weight to the fact that, you know, uh, Wanda and Jonathan were approached as, as possibilities as coming back, and perhaps Scoopin was, was uh, uh, mentioned for coming back. I mean, you know... Who knows, really? But it, it seems somewhat logical. So they were throwing several people around for this twist. So this is something that the Survivor producers were thinking about. It's not something they threw together necessarily last minute, but it's something that we as the community sort of found out about last minute. So it's it's it, it's kind of an interesting sort of twist. And, and yes, when whenever Survivor does something new today, we get it, we get it announced very, very early. But this one was not announced until sort of before the show ran. So as Mario said... I didn't necessarily, you know, totally know it was I, I, I heard the rumors and was was thinking as as Guatemala was airing that it was going to be Bobby John and Stephanie coming back. But I didn't know under what capacity were they going to be coaches? Were they just going to be there? Or were they, you know, I, I had no idea that they were just going to play. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think the other big noteworthy thing that was was talked about with this cast after it was released was that this was the first big season that really didn't have any minority players by racial standards i mean you do have you did have lydia who we assumed was hispanic but other than that we, we did not have anyone of black or asian descent which always seemed to be uh kind of you know you always kind of peppered in uh different races over the course of many different survivor casts but this seemed to be the really first non-white one and i think it goes to show that throughout this like second decade of survivor we're going to see a lot of casting tweaks I'm, I'm not going to say that this cast was a complete dud because i think after like episode four everyone in this cast is is a fantastic character but i thought it was super interesting that like palau now we're starting to see a lot more of these young pretty white blonde brunette girls you know it's funny i never even noticed there wasn't a minority in the cast and it's funny that you say that because one of my gripes I've always had with the season is that they cast two, you know, preppy, snobby Ivy League guys who are very similar on paper in Rafe and Brian. And it's funny that you have two people that are the, almost the exact same demographic, but no minorities. So it's, it's funny that the, the, those two things kind of go together like that. It's an interesting point. I actually didn't really necessarily think about it until now, but you're absolutely right. It's a pretty monochrome cast, isn't it? Yeah. But maybe maybe they were betting on like because the Guatemala sun was so hot that we'd be able to see their tans more as the <laughs> season progressed. <laughs> That's well. <laughs> t- 
tell you the truth, though, Mike, what what has really stuck out on me rewatching this uh, for the Historians podcast, and it's something that I always knew about the show. I think I think someone asked a, a listener question a long time ago. You know, what was like the hardest thing you ever saw in Survivor and whatnot? And I always said I think that that opening hike in Guatemala is one of the toughest things ever. But paired with that, this was a physically grueling season. Like when you watch it, and what's funny is that they don't really sugarcoat it very much. When you are watching Survivor Guatemala, you are very painfully aware that these guys are basically going through hell. Yeah, and another th- comparison that comes up to my mind is Africa, which one of the other more brutal seasons in that, you know, in Africa, they're surrounded by lions. They're in that boma the whole time. Mm-hmm. In this one, I didn't really remember this until I watched it recently, that they're right there next to the crocodiles. Those crocodiles are alligators. They they alternate terms how what they describe them as, but they, they're right there outside their uh, little swimming hole, their fishing hole. So, I mean, they're not that far from danger. So it's it reminds me of Africa in a lot of ways. Yeah, I would say this is probably the last season where there really are the huge dangers of the environment. I won't say that it's the last season that really gets you involved with the culture because I do believe China is one of the final seasons that does that. I mean, the challenges do a great job here, too, of really making them play like the Maya would, quote-unquote. But uh, I think that it's it's a really dangerous situation. And I mean, we'll, we'll jump to the scene in a few episodes when Nakum just says fuck it, and they just go in the water and start swimming around with the crocodiles. Like It's it's crazy that these people were driven to that point, but I guess the conditions were just were horrible, and they look miserable after like day eight, whereas you look at these modern-day seasons where they're in the Philippines or they're in Samoa, and they're, they're doing fine on like day 20. I will uh, drop a little spoiler here for later in the podcast, but people might be interested to know this, that um, well, I'm sure we'll get into the relationship between me and Rafe, but one of the things that Rafe told me right after the season or within the first couple of years after the season is behind the scenes. He's like, you know, Guatemala, the, the conditions were so tough that he honestly thinks that's the season that broke Survivor. I mean, it was just really brutal for the players, for the producers. He goes, a lot of fans don't know this, but a lot of the crew members and a lot of the producers quit after that season. That It was just so tough and so unpleasant that he thinks the show has never really been the same since. So, I mean, that's some insider stuff coming right there that how brutal the conditions were. And Probst absolutely hated this season at the time. I've heard he doesn't like Survivor, and he really hasn't for a long time. And Rafe just, I mean, Timmy has said, I think Guatemala was the season that really pushed him over the top. He just hasn't really liked Survivor since then because it was just unpleasant for everybody. Well, I can see that. I mean, it's... It's something else. I've never been to Guatemala. I have been to, and, and I know that I'm not alone in this since it's a very big touristy attraction, but uh, I had the, the pleasure of, of going to uh, Mexico a couple of years ago, and uh, I visited the uh, uh, Mayan site of Chichen Itza, the famous city, you know, one of the wonders of the world there, the Temple of Khan and all that sort of stuff. But what struck me was that I knew, sort of by watching Survivor Guatemala, even though they're two completely different countries, you're in sort of that Mayan Empire territory where they had a lot of advancements towards, you know, not getting themselves killed in just the incredibly harsh weather that they live in. And so I was trying to steal and prepare myself for when I was going to visit Chichen Itza. You know, please don't die, Jay. You are an indoor cat, and, and it's, it's going to be bad for you. And, I mean, when I went to Chichen Itza, it was, it was a wonderful afternoon. But it was 102 degrees with, like, humidity, you know, so high. I mean, it was just a furnace, and there's no shade. And you're just running around on the site, and it was so cool to see all the cool ruins. But, man, it was so hot. And it was just so unbearable. And 
the thing about it is, is that I was out there for, I, I was among those ruins for what, four or five hours. And then afterwards I had a nice lunch and I had, I had a good swim somewhere safe. And then I got to go home to my resort and, and, and have air conditioning for the rest of the evening. Like I was really proud of myself that I didn't get sick and, and get heat stroke for five hours. And then these guys are out in just worse conditions for all of this time. I, I just can't even, I just can't even think about it. It's just incredible. Yeah. Imagine playing round ball in that 114 degree yeah, heat. Exactly. I mean, I mean, not to defend Brianna before we get there, but like, how, I mean, I'm sure I'm surprised people weren't passing out and dying in that challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Considering that they were passing out and dying less than a week ago. Like I'm surprised, <laughs> I'm surprised Blake bounced back as quickly as he did. I know it takes him a couple episodes, but like, you know, for, um, for thing, for everything that goes wrong with Blake in the first episode for him to bounce back and be okay within like three days is a miracle. Yeah. I'd be done. If, if only there were a nickname for a person who always bounces back and comes out on top. Yeah. Uh, Silver lad. Silver lad. We oh, I, Silver I, I don't. I don't know if silver is, is is quite the metal we're going for. Maybe maybe something a little higher. Aluminium. Ah, aluminium. Very British. Fantastic. <laughs> I didn't play D and D. I don't know what was more uh, worth more than a silver piece. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a nerd like you two. Got it. Got a roll for your dex check there. <laughs> All right. Okay, so well, let's. Yeah. Let's I was just going to say. It. Yeah. Speaking of of you know the the pyramids at Chichen Itza let's just talk about how amazing it was that they were able to film survivor at an actual Mayan pyramid <laughs> I know, um, right are wow you kidding me i mean the talk about the the more modern seasons where they just throw them onto a random beach and there's no effort whatsoever to like make it cultural like they're at the freaking base of the Mayan ruins <laughs> like well, how did they even get permission to do that well they they couldn't do it nowadays because you know where they would hide the idols inside the ruins so you would have people like excavating like can you imagine russell like moving these stones aside casting aside all this like buildings that took thousands of years to to create to find an idol yeah <laughs> it's a good point it's interesting when you look up the location for uh survivor guatemala they are in a uh, uh a national park uh, they're known for Mayan ruins. I mean, it's very off the beaten path and whatnot, which is fantastic. There are Mayan ruins that have really yet even to be discovered uh, out there in the world. And, and even if they've been discovered, they haven't gotten to them yet to excavate them and learn all of their secrets and all that sort of stuff. So I'm sure there are places like Chichen Itza is one of those very famous sites. You can't go on that stuff anymore. They've roped everything off. Like you can go up to it really closely, but you can't climb over it anymore. Whereas you could, you could totally climb that temple in like the sixties and seventies. And at some point they were like, wow, humans are really screwing up these ruins. We need to keep them off the ruins. But then like in the middle, in the middle of Guatemala, this really remote place, they're like, yeah, I guess you can climb on it for now. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure Judd climbing up there won't be a problem. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, sure there's like I'm sure there's like on it. yeah I'm sure there's still a bottle of beer left up there. <laughs> Look, man, I'm just gonna put my bottle of damn beer here, and you're just gonna have to deal with the damn beer being all up here on the mountain, man. You know what I'm saying? Damn. <laughs> but yes, yeah, just if nothing else, I will always respect Guatemala just for the kick-ass location it has. That I don't think any other season tops that. To be honest, they're right at a, some of the most famous ruins ever. Yeah, it's it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, probably one of the best tribal council sets. I mean, that waterfall in Australia is kind of tough to beat. But like, yeah, you're in the middle of Mayan ruins. Like, yeah, here, tribal council. Are you kidding me? All right. So uh, shall we shall we jump into the premiere? I'm I sure. Mar- wait, hold on. Mario's what? probably got more backstory, right? Oh, no, wait, don't don't make me st- don't talk about me. <laughs> 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 yes, um, uh, I have. This is a lot of people have asked me about this. this oh, is, uh, my God. <laughs> Are you done? 
Yes. Okay. <clears throat> so yes, a lot of people know about this. This is my history with Rafe. And I just want to mention this because I have a very unique perspective on this season that I really think most other people aren't going to have. So you're going to kind of hear this uh, season from a different perspective. And <clears throat> again, I, I, I hate talking about myself, so I'm doing this only by protest. But my history with Rafe was Rafe was a very well-known uh, Survivor fan on the Internet uh, during the early days of the show. I'm talking back Australia, Africa, Marquesas. He was very well-known. And in fact, when I used to write my stories, my all-star stories, before I would ever publish a story, I would, I kind of had like a, a Greek council of elders that I would run every single episode by, every single character by before I published it, just to make sure it sounded right, it was realistic. And Rafe was one of those guys. His name was Rafi Lee. And he was just a kid. He was like 16, 17 years old. He was a high school student at the time. But he was very well known on Survivor Sucks, and he was absolutely one of the Survivor experts on the internet. I mean... Some of the other people that I would run by on my little tribunal council were uh, Beatles, who was on our first podcast. He's one of the best, top survivor experts I know. Then this girl named Isabella. Her username was Ener Energia Del Sol on Sucks. And then Rafi Lee. And then this guy Colleen Lover. I mean, these were the cream of the crop smartest survivor fans on the internet. And Rafe was one of them. And this is way before he was on Survivor. So I knew Rafe for years. And we did projects together. He tried to help me write my stories, even though I. I liked his opinions and stuff. He was so young. He was like 17 and I was like 27, 28. I just didn't really take him seriously as a writer at the time. So I would always turn him down to help me with his projects or my projects. So anyway, to make a long story short, we kind of had a falling out. We, we had some issues over some projects we did. We didn't talk to each other. And then he randomly winds up on Survivor about a year later, like the actual show. I'm like, holy fuck, is that Rafe? Is that Rafi Lee on Survivor? And sure enough, it was him. He was a college student at the time at, I believe, Brown University. <clears throat> so, long story short, again, what happens is Rafe comes back from Survivor. He wants to tell his story. He wants to tell people on the internet what happened out there and basically how the show on TV was different from the internet or how the TV a show on TV is different from what really happened. And this is back in a time when the players were not allowed to do that. You couldn't go on the internet and spill behind the scenes stuff. This, the show was very strictly regulated. It's still back at the time. You'll notice there's almost no in-depth interviews from those first 10, 12 seasons with players coming back and saying how it really went. So Rafe comes to me at the time because I'm a survivor writer. I have a huge readership. He's like, look, I want to tell you my story. Here's exactly how Guatemala went down. He just went on. I mean, we talked about that show for hours and hours, just him telling me little details, little things that were different, how stuff really went down. So, and basically how what it turned up turned into was that I was his survivor biographer. He wanted me to be able to tell his story just because he couldn't do it directly. And because of our past history, that's how, uh, that's how I kind of ended up in the situation. So I know a lot of Guatemala stuff behind the scenes. I know little trivia. I know little details that are a lot different and I'll try to interject them in the show I mean, I don't want to turn this into this is Rafe's version of Guatemala, but there's a lot of stuff I can interject that'll just give you a little richer uh, visual of how this story went down. So that's all I wanted to say. I'm just saying, uh, and again, <laughs> there's so much stuff here. I'm going to try to keep it keep it so I don't just monopolize the show, but there's a lot of neat stuff here, especially towards the end of the season. Once we get to the end of the season, I think we have some details here on our show that you won't hear on any other you know, recap of Guatemala ever, because this is stuff that was never seen on TV. But once you hear it, it totally makes sense why the season ended the way that it did. Now, Mike, and, when, when, when you try to move forward with, with, with the show, this is when Mario says, oh, wait, I have one more thing. So, you know, I was just trying to preempt that for you. 
yeah. just say, to be fair, you were the one that prompted that one. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was prompting it because I knew it was coming. So you know, just just heading it off at the pass. Yeah. No, that, that's very good, and it was actually something that I wanted to not really get into, get into, but. Uh, rewatching Guatemala, it very much smacks of a modern season to me more than a lot of seasons that we've seen so far. And I think that one of the reasons is, is because, you know, we've said many times on the show that there's a game that happens out there in Survivor. And then there is a television show that we watch. And a lot of times the television show isn't necessarily what the game was out there. And I think that a lot of people are very ready to just say, well, whatever we saw on TV, that's exactly what happened out there on the island. And it's like, no, there's, there's a story and editing and, and things going along. But Guatemala is one of those where I think you can really see that what we saw on TV was not exactly what was going on out there. So it would be very good to hear Rafe's point of view. Not that his point of view is necessarily the be-all, end-all, but yeah. it will help fill in some gaps, I think. Yeah, and absolutely. I'll be the first one to say, don't just accept you know, my version through Rafe as being the truth of how it went down. That's just one guy's opinion. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to tell that story so people understand that Rafe was one of the four Survivor fans I looked up to more than anybody else on the internet, like through the first nine, ten seasons. Like, this guy knows his stuff. He's not just saying stuff to make himself look good. He knows what the internet fans will want to know. So, like, he's just... I, I always point out that we kind of had a falling out. We're not really good friends. So I'm not just sitting here building this guy up as he's my best buddy. We, I really didn't like him for a time, and I'm not sure I really even like him anymore now. But he has a history, and I, it's, it's really interesting when it's seeing things from his perspective. It just, it's going to make a lot more sense. All right. So with that, uh, that preemptive statement, let's, let's finally jump into the premiere, shall we? I don't know. Right. You're leading. You tell us. <laughs> I'm, le- I'm leading by democracy. Uh, <laughs> we're going to do democracy. So we open on uh, what Jeff Probst calls ruins to a monument to a once powerful and sophisticated civilization, which uh, at that point was kind of describing the Survivor franchise in general. <laughs> and uh, we see that these uh, 16 castaways are hacking their way through the jungle, and they've already been divided into two tribes. And we, we get the big intro to the season uh just big intro on the pyramid uh and he you know tell t- gives them a little little bit of a briefing he talks about how there's some tools left in their camp that the that the maya traditionally used this is going to become a big theme throughout the season of, of them trying to live as authentically as the maya did complete with uh giving them looks like uh, like some pestle uh, some sharp rocks to use for tools but the biggest tool they get is in the form of Stephanie and Bobby John. So what what did you what was your initial reaction when this aired at the time? Well, Bobby John and Stephanie certainly are tools. <laughs> One in particular turns out to be a really big tool. <laughs> yeah, it's it's again, it's at the time no one really knew if they were coming back, what their role was going to be. So it was fascinating to watch this episode at the time and how they came out and then Jeff just flat out says, "Make no mistake about it, these are players. They're in the game because again, that was really the first time we'd heard that. And I'm just going to go back to what we said before the season that it makes more sense that you think Jonathan and Wanda should have been those two. But yeah. I, I, think, I think the producers probably did a flip-flop at the last minute just because Stephanie was so goddamn popular that they had to use her again. So, But again, I, I just don't, this doesn't seem like a twist that was written for Stephanie and Bobby John. It seems much more like it was written for Jonathan and Wanda. But I'll admit I was ex- as excited as anybody to see Stephanie come out because I was the biggest Stephanie fanboy as anyone at the time. I thought she was great and here we go. We get to hear that nasally New Jersey whiny accent again. I, I think it's very telling when you watch this scene um, play out. Because, okay, first of all, in the intro, Jeff says the Maya mysteriously disappeared. It's not super mysterious. Like, it, it's <laughs> coming from a historical perspective, it's only partially mysterious. Like, 
we sort of know what happened pretty <laughs> much, Jeff. So, I'm surprised uh, Jeff didn't give Brian Corridan credit for wiping out the Mayans in his recap. There's also that. But, you know, he bleeds Yasha, <laughs> so what are you going to do? But uh, the the reaction of the people, because then he says, yeah, and you, you get these other tools, and then, <laughs> come on out, guys. <laughs> and then Stephanie and Bobby John come out, and they have, like, the most awkward flippin' handshake at the top of this thing. Like, <laughs> they're like, hey, guy, hey, Steph, hey, hey, Bobby. Like, it, what's very fun and what I like about this sort of season is you can tell that Bobby John and Steph – like they've, it's like they've gone through a traumatic experience together, and mm-hmm. so they're linked to it. But you can tell that they don't necessarily like each other. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's super. It's super fantastic. But like they're, they, then I, I want to know how long it took Bobby John and Stephanie to get off that pyramid. Because <laughs> like you know Jeff is talking and you see like things with them and they're like trying to navigate down this like very steep pyramid like <laughs> sort of down these steps and then they have to like hang onto a rope and stuff like that. And you kind of, they kind of get to the bottom finally and then you see Stephanie just kind of turn and go, "What's up, guys?" And I think she, you could tell by like her demeanor that it probably took her and Bobby John a long freaking time to get down there and they were just standing there waiting. They had to cut out the take where Bobby John falls down face first and crashes through all the trees and things like that. Yes. Well, sir, I seem to have slipped. <laughs> Jeff but just I, like improvising monologue. Like, Bobby John, uh, he is a, has a rugged chin. Uh, the hardest. I like how I like how he does call Bobby John the hardest working survivor ever. Yes, he's a Sagittarius, also. <laughs> exactly. But I do have to give credit to Survivor for using those ruins right off the bat. I mean, just a cool visual to see these two larger than life survivors up at the top. Right. But although this is something I've written about on the on the internet, that it's weird that you're just automatically assumed to know who these people are. Like, it kind of ruins the narrative of Survivor that, oh, here's some two players, you know who they are already. Like, what if people didn't know who they are? It kind of makes it weird. It it does make it weird. I mean, Jeff did give an intro. I'm not saying that totally makes up for it. But in a way, what helps it is that they were from the season just previous. I agree with you. I think this was a a twist written more for Jonathan and, and Wanda. But... You know, Stephanie and Bobby John probably brings in better ratings. I'm just saying. Just, yeah. just I don't, a I don't bit. know. Could you imagine Wanda with Judd? <laughs> I no. <laughs> and I don't even think it's good. I just can't even imagine. Like Judd would just be like, "Well, man, she just sings all the damn temp, damn friggin' time, man." You know what I'm saying, man? Yeah. That would be the first instance of someone actually removed from the game for like physical altercation. Would be when Judd cartoonishly punches Wanda through a tree. I would actually, you know, all we're we're gonna riff on Judd quite a bit, but I I actually give Judd a lot more credit than that. Um, but yeah, I, what what's interesting though is the fact that when they see Bobby John and Stephanie, and what's funny is that Bobby John is totally like the Ringo in this situation, yeah. and and I totally get it. But like they see Bobby John and Stephanie, and you see like Brian and Rafe and Lydia, and you know these people, they sort of zoom in on them, and they are like starstruck at these people that are at the top of the pyramid. And what's funny is that that was kind of my reaction too. Like you saw, like I had heard that it was going to be Bobby John and Stephanie. And I think I told my wife that I'm at the time I was like, Oh my God, I think that Bobby John and Stephanie are going to come back in some capacity. And then they came on my screen. And I was like, Oh my God, it's them. It's those guys from the previous season, you know? And it was like, they were also starstruck. And, you know, there's that moment like, after Jeff has explained that they're going to be on a tribe and stuff like that. And I think like Liddy or someone's like, you're my inspiration for being here and stuff like that. Oh, stop it. And you're, this was it. Like this was, they were fans. They, they, they were fans just as we were. Like we were so excited to see them back. It's so funny to think of now, but it was the total truth. It's funny that, that you pointed out there's no minorities on this season, Mike. Like, to think they were going to remedy that by putting Wanda out there, who's more pale than just about anybody. Like, <laughs> at least Stephanie is off-white. Like, she's closer to minority. <laughs> 
Yeah, I guess so. Now we can say like, oh, it's the white cast and Stephanie <laughs> and Lydia. Also, yeah. also shout out my first favorite quote of the season going to Mr. Brian for when Jeff is like, they are players in the game. You can vote them out right away. You can use them and their experience and stuff like that. Stephanie, you are now a member of Yasha. And Brian's like, oh my God, I love Stephanie. And Stephanie's on our team. Like, we won. Like, we won. And I was like, Brian, have you seen Stephanie play Survivor? <laughs> Yes, even back then, Stephanie's legacy was very confused. Stephanie, also most successful survivor ever. I'm like, wait a minute, I don't think so. Stephanie's on our team, we won. No, Stephanie's on our team, we lost, guys. (laughs) But we get Stephanie and they got the other person. Well, they're not going to have snot rockets at Yasha camp, so I think they won overall. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they better not. They have two Ivy League students. They should be higher than that. That's true. So as the you know as the tribes get acquainted, Jeff gives them their first reward challenge. And Jay talked about this before, and this is considered still to be the the the, the craziest opening to a season probably ever. Uh, their first quote unquote reward challenge is an eleven mile, what turns out to be a twenty four hour hike through <laughs> the Guatemalan jungle to this one Ma- Mayan ruin that's going to be the camp of the tribe that gets there first. And in addition, it's Flint. So Jeff kind of says like okay and over there is some water and some fruit and some other stuff take as much as you want and he just sort of sends him off and says go so this is basically like the australia opening just on steroids it's funny that survivors constantly trying to one-up itself at this point like you had the palau challenge it lasted what 13 hours 16 hours i forget yeah so the next season we have an overnight challenge like <laughs> they're just gonna keep going the next one will be a week long <laughs> yeah it's the only overnight challenge in survivor history if i recall I loved it at the time, and I still love it. I don't know how much great TV this was. What I liked about this episode, going back and looking at it, is they really focused on this hike. And yeah, they had to, because that was the first two days of the show, was them hiking. So you can't necessarily gloss over it. But, you know, this hike is just, this is something even just outside of everything that's in Survivor Guatemala. Like, there's Survivor Guatemala, and then there's also this episode one hike to the camp. Like, it is ridiculous. Like, they have to hack through a jungle. They have to use a compass like it's not like they're on a trail the entire time yeah there are actually there there are trails in there there were like archaeology trails and roads and whatnot but like they actually had to like use a compass and navigate through jungle are you kidding me i don't know i don't know how nick brown would have done in this situation (laughs) hey you watch your mouth (laughs) but yeah i mean blake ends up with a tree falling over his shoulder because they're knocking down trees yeah, this is a uh, it's crazy, and I, I I think it's a nice way to we do get some characterization throughout these few scenes that mm-hmm. we'll probably talk about. One of the big ones is Gary, but I I like I, I I like these starts of the game. Whether you know they do it in Australia, they do it in Africa, whether it's through the marooning stuff as well, or even as recent as I think they did it a little bit in Token Chains. Uh, they they did like a big hike back to camp as well. I think it's just nice to have these kind of breaks to get to know the people instead of throwing them into the game almost immediately and saying, like, okay, this is how they play the strategy game. We got to find out a lot more about, like, who these people are, uh, and then we're going to care about them later. Survivor editors were, even though they're going to be a little wonky with the editing this season, they were still a lot more trusting of the audience than they may be today. Yeah, this scene is a uh, perfect example of something I've been saying for years, that they really have to get less strategy in the show, that strategy is not interesting unless you know the people so i mean this hike is 30 minutes of that in a nutshell it's all character scenes and it's the kind of stuff that i love to see on the show yeah it's funny that they you know they 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 do a lot of they do a lot of characterization as as you said mike and mario and they also are sort of they're painting and what's funny is that they paint like one of the first things that we see is we see gary taking the lead at yasha 
you know, and, and, and doing an okay job with it. And, and then we, we cut over to Nakum and we have Jim doing the thing with the compass and like they're showing Jim being sort of inept with the compass, which is really funny because leading into the first day and into the first night, they show you that Nakum's got a big lead. So it's like they're showing Jim being inept with the compass, even though they're totally ahead. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if part of that is just because, and they'll talk about this a lot through the first few episodes. Nakum greatly outmatches Yaksha in terms of just pure physical strength. I mean, I would say the weakest link on Nakum is probably Margaret, who still holds her own uh, for a while. You know, after they get rid of Jim on Yasha, you have Lydia and you have people like Morgan and Brianna that get brought up as weak links throughout these first few episodes. So part of me wonders if it wasn't like you know. Gary working the compass that dragged them back, but just the fact that they had to like you're as slow, you're as strong as your weakest player, so they had to always hang back for people like Lydia and Morgan to catch up. Mm-hmm. It's funny in her uh, if you watch on the DVD the early show interviews, Brooke, who honestly I would probably say is one of the most forgettable players in Survivor history, but she goes on and on in her early show interview about how good Nakum was at their compass and how good she and Jim were in particular that they were the ones leading the tribe that first day. So. That's kind of, if you're wondering how they got so far ahead, yeah, it's really kind of Brooke and Jim, according to Brooke. Yeah, and Mike's got a point, and that's, that's something where Nakum is a much more physically strong tribe, um, you know, not just with the, with the guys, with the girls as well, because Yasha's got, I mean, they have Stephanie, yay, but uh, they, have, they have Lydia, who doesn't seem to be, like, the best challenge beast ever, and they have uh, Brianna and, 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 and uh, Morgan, and then they also have Amy, who, you know... Is, isn't necessarily doing very well. And there's that scene sort of where they head into nighttime and, and already at nighttime, like they've, they've been, they're having trouble. And like Blake has already had that accident where like he's, he's already had a, a, a branch fell him across his shoulder and the branch had like ridiculously thick briar, you know, uh, pins in it that like stuck into him and, you know, he's throwing up and, and not doing very well. And his body's probably shutting down a bit. And like they, in the morning, Yasha sort of catches up to Nakum and Nakum's just like, oh, and then they run away. And then you see Yasha trying to catch up and there's like Lydia and Amy and they're like there. And there's this great scene where Stephanie's like, all right, let's, let's do a jog it out. Let's jog it out. <laughs> so I want to, to kind of rewind a little bit and just focus in on this Gary reading the compass scene because this is when we, we get the first mention of Gary Hogaboom, the former NFL quarterback. Oh but Gary God. but Gary has an alternate plan. Uh, he owns a small landscaping company and it's just this is a Pandora's box of amazing quotes and storylines for the rest of the season. It's amazing when I'm watching these early episodes how big that storyline is, how much it dominates the entire narrative. Like that is the main storyline for the first three episodes. Gary is he's lying about being a football player. You know, if you think about it, I mean, at the time, they've, they've cast a bunch of former athletes going forward. I would say Jimmy Johnson is probably the most re- reputable one. But, I mean, at the time, Gary was probably the, the most notable person to come onto Survivor and play for the first time. I mean, he was, he was, he was very well known in, from, a, from an athletic standpoint. So I think I, I do remember... He really pro- wasn't, Mike. Jimmy <laughs> Christmas. Well, I was going to say, even if he wasn't well known, you knew his name. His name stood out. Like, I knew Gary Hogaboom, but I didn't really know how good he was. I just kind of recognize the name because it's such a distinct name. That's true. <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm going to say this. I'm a little younger than you, Mario. Not like a ton, but I'm a little younger. I had no idea who this guy was. Zero clue. And like, you know, he comes in and he's like, my name's Gary Hogaboom. I used to play in the NFL. 
I was a quarterback, and I'm, I'm sitting there going, that, that's cool, Gary. I, I, I couldn't pick you out of a lineup. <laughs> you know. And, and you look at his career. He played in the NFL for about 10 years or so, and he has a short, uh, around 9,000 passing yards, uh, 48 touchdowns, like 60 interceptions. I mean, he was just a backup. He, he played some games and threw some balls, but like he, he, was, he didn't have a very prominent you know, or, or, or sort of long-stretching sort of NFL career. I mean, he just he, he played some games, and, and that's cool. I mean, that's further than I'll ever get. And it's really funny because he made such a big deal about it. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 it and rightfully so. Like, you know, as, as people said, if people think that, you know, people are like, you're an ex-NFL player, they're like, well, you have money. You don't need to be here for the money then. And I can understand trying to keep that under wraps. It's just really funny because ever since then, we've had Jeff Kent and, you know, Cliff Robinson and, you know, Jimmy Johnson and people that, you know, were all stars and stuff in, in, the, in, the, in the sports they played, like very recognizable people. And then you have Gary Hogaboom who's freaking out and being like, I'm Gary Hogaboom. I can't let anyone know I'm Gary Hogaboom. I'm like, you could probably let people know you're Gary Hogaboom. It's, it's probably okay, Gary. Like, ugh. And, and that's what just makes it so fun on a rewatch is that he's freaking out over it. And you're like, <laughs> you're like the last athlete that Survivor has ever cast that probably needs to freak out over your identity. <laughs> What I remember about Gary Hogaboom is he was his name was very popular on Sports Center in the nineties, like the Dan Patrick, Keith yeah. Dolberman, Chris Berman guys. So I knew Hogaboom because they'd say like, you know, Hogaboom goes the dynamite and stuff like that. So he was famous because of his name. That's how I remember him. Well, not not anymore. Now he goes by Gary Hawkins. Exactly. I just uh, love his choice of a last name, that it still has the H in it. I don't know if he was some sort of contingency plan in case someone ever referred to him as like Gary H. <laughs> and he, he, so they want to catch him off guard. Gary H. <laughs> no, the best, I mean, we're going to go a little far ahead, but the, guess, the best is when Danny totally outs him as going to Central Michigan. He's like, yeah. oh, yeah, no, I went to Michigan. I just didn't play. Oh, yeah, so she's like, she's got the school and the name and the face right. You just didn't play football. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. You can tell, like, what I love about it is that he's, he's, he's thought about this clearly. And he's got a strategy. Like his strategy is, is he's like, look, I don't even care if someone say, says, dude, I totally recognize you play in the NFL. I'm just going to deny, deny, deny. You know, he's going to deny it and say he's Gary Hawkins landscaper. But I love that fact, Mario. Like you said, that they're like, yeah, you played, co- you played football at Central Michigan. He's like, well, I went to Central Michigan, but I never. And it's like, look, I know that most of the country, you guys don't know Michigan very well. I live here. And I know that, you know, it's a state that, you know, gets flown over a lot. But there's a lot of colleges in Michigan. Like, it's not like there's like two, you know, <laughs> he could have he's fr- if he says he's from the state of Michigan, he could have picked another one. And, you know, I guess Michigan and Michigan State are pretty well known. But I mean, there's northern Michigan, there's western Michigan, there's there's so many other there's directional Michigans that he could have like, you know, I didn't go to central. I went to western or, you know, he, he could have. He could have said anything there, but I love that he was like, no, yeah, I went to Central, but uh, yeah, no. You know, it would have even been an even better line. He could have pulled this one off. Oh, I'm Chad. I'm Chad Hogaboom, Gary's twin brother. <laughs> Chad, <laughs> Chad Vader. <laughs> yes. I've been living, uh, living in his shadow my whole life. <laughs> yes, I hate that guy. That guy's brought me nothing but pain. It'll be like a last action hero with Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant, brilliant. If Gary ever goes back on Survivor, I don't know how he'll be able to pull it off. But Mario, I think I think you can make him do it. <laughs> what maybe like Back to the Future Two, where he's playing against past versions of himself and stuff like Ex- that. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, so we'll uh, fast forward to later that night, and I mean, Blake has probably one of the worst starts to Survivor ever. I'd say even past someone like. Clarence and Diane, 
uh, or like people dry heaving in Africa, where like first of all, this this spiked tree breaks over his shoulder and embeds several spikes into into him, and then he just starts as soon as I get settled in for the night, he just starts dry heaving all over the place. And I I know when I was watching at the time, I very much thought like, okay, this guy's gonna get medevac. We're gonna have our first medevac since scooping. This man is going to die in the jungles of Guatemala. <laughs> Yeah, that's a rough place to be when you're in that situation. I mean, middle of nowhere. And I have heard, I don't, I don't know if this is actually true, that the, that branch that broke over his shoulder was actually venomous. So it was more than just a pain. There was actually venom in his shoulder. That's what I've heard. It, it oh very God. well could be true. I mean, yeah. the, the Amazon and, and, and just other such jungle-type places, which I know that Guatemala is very much not the Amazon, but I'm just saying places that are jungle-ish, have stuff that's so weird we can't even comprehend. And so you're like, yeah, that was a weird tree that had those like spikes sticking out of it. And then if you just said, yeah, there's a little neurotoxin in there, or, you know, just a little <laughs> something that's like, yeah, I, okay, I buy that. Yeah. So you, you think Blake was just tripping balls that entire trip? I think it was like Kava. I think it was. <laughs> but I've heard, yeah, he was really bad law, bad off, badly off. Thank God, though, for Margaret, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I know. Seriously. Like, they, I don't know how the Nakum men would have done without Margaret like, tending to them personally, being there, like the Florence Nightingale of Nakum the first day or so. And it's not even just the, the attention. It was just the fact that she's there. She's keeping people calm. She's, you know, being a presence. That, that matters so much, not just for, for Blake and, and the people who are affected, but just everyone else around there, that they're not freaking out and running around and you know, all that sort of stuff. She, re- she really kept it calm and she's, she's going to need those nursing skills for the next couple of days here. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. funny when, when I watched this episode, Margaret is like the most valuable cast member in one episode since maybe Sandra and Pearl Islands. Like she's so integral to this episode and then she just completely disappears after this episode pretty much. Yep. And then the, well, the next time we really see her is people complaining about her. So it's, it's weird. Again, the editing for this season is really weird. There are a lot of weird arcs going on, and Mar- Margaret's is definitely one of them. Of like, as you said, she's like the savior of Nakum, and then she ends her arc as like Judd's worst enemy. Yeah. And she she ends her arc like she's tending to everyone and making sure everyone's okay. And then after a while, they're like, you know, she keeps tending to us and making sure we're okay. Like, what is up with that? Yeah. So she's looking after us, that bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so we get to we get to the next day, and as you mentioned before, uh, Yasha was able to catch up to Nakum, presumably because they had to take care of Blake, who was you know dry heaving and tripping the entire night. And uh, you can tell there are many, there are only a few timely references in this show, but they definitely come out uh, in spades, especially when Cindy has this confessional where she compares Nakum to Sea Biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay. I, okay, who can do the best Cindy impression? We're going to have a contest here. And I will say right now, it's not me, so I'm not going to try. I have to, like, plug my nose for it. Where's Paul? Paul has, like, the best nasal impression <laughs> he can do of her. Yeah. I can't. I try. I've been working on my Cindy impression all week, but I can't get it down. She's got such a distinct accent and the speaking style, and I can't do it. It's I, like it's, the movie Seabiscuit. I, I, I got to work on it. It's killing me. I got Someone has to do a Cindy impression. Okay, I'll work on it for part two. <laughs> Sounds, well, we'll I, try I, to, didn't, we'll, I didn't know you wanted it. Like... I'll work on it. All right. So, uh, Nakum doesn't get too far ahead, though, because, uh, you know, as they're, like, walking through the jungle, I, you know, they thought Blake was their only person they had to worry about, but suddenly Bobby John just starts... Bobby John goes down. Literally, he goes down. It, like, his body starts seizing up from dehydration, and now would they have two people down and again i'm still i'm still greatly surprised that they're able to win this challenge despite the <laughs> fact that now a third of their team is like an invalid 
<laughs> it shows you how fast they must have been going and or how slow Yasha must have been going. Because you're right, they do have these stops. I mean, Bobby John's entire body cramps up. And I mean, that is just that is just a bad place to be when you're in intense heat and humidity and, you know, you just can't get enough water in you to sort of, you know, replenish that and, and get all that out. I mean, he just, he was in a bad way, but you know, Bobby John, he's just going to run through a wall until he's dead. So it's like, you know, like they're trying to get him to like calm down, eat something, drink something. And he's just like, I'm fine. I can keep going. And you're like, all right, well, you know, that's how it is. Okay, I have a little comparison to this that, you know, they're going through 114 degree heat going through the Mayan jungle. A couple of years ago, I was down, we did a Mexican cruise. We stopped in Mazatlan and my wife and I did a ropes course where you get to go out in the woods and you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yep. Where you, yeah, you yeah. zip line and stuff. <clears throat> well, I'm, we're going through there. We're only out there for about two hours, two, three hours. And it wasn't 114. It was maybe 98, 100. It was somewhere around there. And about 80% of the way through that ropes course as I'm walking along a bouncing bridge, all of a sudden, my legs just turned to jelly. I couldn't finish that course. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what was going on. I'm like, what the heck is this? And like, all of a sudden, I couldn't get enough oxygen. And I had to sit down, and they came over. They were concerned about me. They wanted to make sure it wasn't my heart or something. I'm like, no, it's just all of a sudden, I just I can't support myself. I'm getting no energy. I can't breathe. And so I just sat there arrested for about half an hour. But I have no. apparently, that's a very common thing that happens for people that aren't used to those conditions when you're exerting yourself out in the woods like that. And I ended up finishing the course fine. But again, that was only two hours on a ropes course for middle-aged people. This is not 11-mile trek through the jungle carrying supplies. So I know full well, I mean, Bobby John must have been busting his ass to end up that down, I mean, that out of it. He just, he just collapsed. And again, I was never anything like that. But I know what he must have been going through. That, that absolutely takes a toll on you, and it happens all at once if you're not ready for it. Mm-hmm. It's weird. Bobby John near the end, especially when he's like dragging himself out of the boat, it seems like he's like auditioning for Wesley in The Princess Bride of like <laughs> when he's like mostly dead. He is. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's you laugh at it watching it, but I'm like, that must have been scary for him because he has no idea what his nerves and muscles are doing. They're just completely haywire all of a sudden. Yeah. So Nakum is the first to get to, you know, they, they find the trail and Nakum's still able to surge ahead in spite of. Bobby John just locking up uh, and they get to the boat and basically we we find that the central water source of this season which is this giant lake that both camps are around and they have to paddle across the lake to get to the finish line and uh, as Nakum paddles across we really get our first we get like a Judd confession or two beforehand but this is this is really Judd's first big entrance into Survivor when he decides to uh, pull a Stephanie and or Jonathan and just jump out of the boat early and he crawls through the mud. You know, there's no better visual than Judd crawling through the mud like a giant pig. Yep. <laughs> okay, I'll let who's gonna who's gonna have the Brandon quote here? Uh I can try. I think I, I did okay with it during the tenure the ten ten season one. Uh I think it says, uh, uh we get we get to the docks and old Judd jumps out of the boat early. He had a premature evacuation. <laughs> Every time I watch the season I'm reminded how much I love Brandon. I was going to say the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. He's just a little confessional sniper. Just like it, we, 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 we skipped the one at the start where he talks about Bobby John, how, you know, Bobby John, it's great that he's on the team, but Bobby John is kind of a little bit uh, dumb, I guess you'd say. <laughs> or when he's like, oh, uh, I've, I've gone on an 11 mile hike. Never. <laughs> he's got like a little bit of an edge to him despite being a farmer from Kansas. Well, he's that's funny. Yeah. He's funny. little 22 year old farmer from Kansas. who's consistently hitting the joke that I'm not expecting him to make. Well, that, that's the thing is that watch rewatching Brandon. And I agree with you guys. 100% love Brandon to death. Like Brandon is fantastic. And 
The problem, though, with Brandon is you could see exactly why he's not great at Survivor. And the problem is, is that he's like one of these people, like I was talking about with like Ian with season 10. Like Brandon's just naturally good at a lot of things in this game. Like, you know, he, he works. He, he, his body didn't break down. He's very good in challenges. Like there's a lot of good things about Brandon, but like he has just enough antisocial in him. Yeah. To just not, not be there. Like he can't just, you know, he can't totally immerse himself in everybody else. He's a little bit apart, but it's like, there's a lot to like about Brandon and just, just the, the gifts that he's bringing to this game. And he doesn't really get mentioned much. And, and a lot of other people sort of get mentioned more in these first few episodes, but it's like, if you watch Brandon is always in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing. Like that guy is on point. Mm-hmm. And let's let's not gloss over how he destroys that rope in that one challenge faster than oh, anybody yeah. else has ever won a challenge before. Right. He saws through like a fully corded rope in like thirty seconds by just hacking at it with a slightly sharp rock. <laughs> yeah, but I think that part of that, and I'm, I was going to get into this, is that uh, Jamie Newton is actually like secret challenge awful person of <laughs> of, of 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 ever in Survivor. Uh, we'll get there when we get there. But yeah, there there was a combination of Jamie being terrible, but Brandon like you know just beast moding a rope like we've never seen before in our lives. Yeah, the Brand. A lot of people, when they bring up, you know, those great forgotten players, great pre-jury players, Brandon is one who gets brought up a lot. You know, he went before his time. But I think I agree with Jay that he really wasn't a great player. He probably got about as far as he should have. But again, just for narration and just how much he adds to the episode through his little comments, he's fantastic for one of these pre-jury players. Yeah, it's it's weird, actually. I feel like if you include All-Stars, I feel like ever since, we we've, for like the past four seasons, we have this stereotype of like, this redneck-like character that's respons- that ends up being responsible for all this narration between, you know, Tom in All Stars, Bubba uh, in Vanuatu, and I guess the way they were they, the way they were skewing Chris a little bit, they, it was a mm-hmm. little bit of Chris as well, and then you have James in Palau, and now Brandon. It's weird that they're like continually casting this stereotype of this like sort of well-spoken, kind of snippy Southern man. And, you know, you were the first person to ever compare James Miller to Brandon Bellinger. So um, if you're listening, Brandon, please uh, take the noose off your neck. Mike was just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, despite Judd getting bogged down and again, Bobby John cramping up as he gets out of the boat, uh, Yasha actually isn't that too far behind. I think they were like halfway across the lake when Nakum finishes. But Nakum does finish and they they get their reward of the big mine ruins and flint and jeff kind of just you know yashak comes in and rests for like two seconds and then jeff sends them back across the lake uh, <laughs> like and, yeah exactly to a to a new camp which is not as fun it's it's just in the middle of the jungle which is which is which pretty sad all things considered yeah Jeff does mention it. It's funny. You were right, Mike. They were about halfway across the lake or so when, when Nakum gets in there. And I mean, they tried to create some amazing race tension in there sort of at the end, like with some pans to, you know, uh, inanimate objects and sort of, you know, building the music like, oh, maybe this is a foot race. But it's like you can tell that Nakum beat them by like 20 minutes, half an hour or so. But at the same time, to finish within about a half an hour of each other on an 11 mile hike, that's pretty good. I think Jeff does point out like, you know, considering it's love mile hike was pretty close. So, so well done there. But close gets you nothing. Go to your new camp. But what's funny is that Steph gets a confessional, and it's something that I don't necessarily want to say that I noticed. You know, at the time when I watched this uh, the season, but it's something I definitely noticed on a rewatch is that yeah, Nakum wins, but Yashaw's in better shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nakum celebrates by 
four out of their nine people laying near death on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of like Steph confessionals, there's actually a really interesting one. And I know we talked a little bit at the beginning of Palau about these Stephanie quotes that now that we know her full arc taken out of context are actually not as inspirational. In fact, they're kind of bitchy. And this is <laughs> This is a fun one where Steph's like, finally, I'm on a tribe that has as much heart and self-determination as me. As me. <laughs> oh, that's the best. I love I, it. I love Stephanie. I will defend her to the death. But yeah, those, those quotes like that, when you start believing your own hype, that doesn't help your case. Yeah, it, and that's the unfortunate thing about Steph is that, you know, I, if this was like a, a Rupert thing where, you know, she didn't really get the reception from the season before she played the next season, I think it would have been a little bit of an easier situation. Maybe she wouldn't have gone in with such a, a big head about things. But yeah, this is a definitely an indicator of uh, Stephanie is believing in her own hype, and that's going to kind of be her curse in this game. This is actually the first time I can interject a little rape story here that he said that was very much the case, that she totally did believe her hype and all you know her legacy was very important to her. So that was the thing with Stephanie, to how you could argue and convince her to do things that might not have been her best move just convince her for about things that were good for her legacy or good for her image and that was a way you could kind of steer her because that was very much the truth she really did buy into this she's the inspiration and you know, like the ultimate warrior in survivor history and she was you know a hero to all these young girls oh wow so uh as as we we flash back to nakum uh, basically all the men are down blake judd and jim are puking but the worst is bobby john and i would i remember when i was watching at the time that this was the probably the scariest survivor moment i had seen since mike fell into the fire and it's probably the one of the scariest moments we'll see until like russell swan nearly dies in a challenge which is like the cameras just panned on bobby john like mid passing out like you see his eyes roll in the back of his head like you see his 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 face get all lackadaisical it's a it's a weird thing i at the time i watched it i i never seen anyone almost pass out before in real life so it was just a weird sight to see yeah i mean that's again i had the one time when i almost passed out in mexico in the jungle but this it was nothing like bobby john he's in and out of consciousness you can see you can hear margaret knowing exactly what's going on trying to keep him focused on her voice so he won't pass out like Bobby John, Bobby John. And it's, it's just creepy to watch his eyes rolling around in his head. Yeah, it's, it's a very, it's, it's creepy. It's very creepy. <laughs> it's creepy. <laughs> and Bobby John actually has a really uh, interesting quote. And I feel like this first episode is, it's sort of like almost like an Africa, Australia comparison in that, like they really hype up Guatemala as, especially with Stephanie, Bobby John saying like, this is the hardest challenge ever, you know, Palau is recess compared to Guatemala. Like it's, it's weird because I think you talk about this a little bit, Mario, that like after Africa nearly was like, killed people uh, there, they, they, or, you know, after they had to move to Marquesas, they kind of scaled back a little bit in terms of like thing, putting them in ultra hard conditions. But I feel like Guatemala, they just <laughs> turned the dial way back up to 10 again. I'm like, let's throw them back into the heat. Let's put them in, a, give them a mile, an 11 mile hike to start. I don't think they bet on, you know, a quarter of the cast going down almost immediately. But I mean, these, these are really, really scary conditions. Yeah. And, and the conditions and the challenges don't get easier either, either. I mean, it doesn't let up all of a sudden. It, there's some really brutal ones coming up. And again, I, I bring up that round ball one. But yeah, it's tough. Bas- Basketball is a hard enough sport on its own, let alone on an uneven surface in 114 degree heat with no water. All right, so uh, we we get a we get uh, a couple of of tree mail scenes, uh, but let's let's fast forward here to the first immunity challenge, which again, uh, being as authentically Maya as possible, this is where they have to paddle out and basically they have to like paddle around a buoy and then paddle back and use this 
method, which I thought the Egyptians first created, but I guess the Maya did it too, of uh, st- stacking logs and moving them to transport their boat across. As if this, this season isn't already more difficult enough. Your first challenge is to do what slaves were forced to do in Egypt to build the pyramids. Yeah, exactly. Be, be slaves. Is, well, actually, yeah, this, this, this whole episode is kind of about them being slaves. because It's like, okay, walk through the th- 11 miles in this heat to get to a home you may be living at for the next month and then pull our boats. Maybe that's why they didn't cast any minorities because it was going to be very offensive. <laughs> that's true. Rory would have a field day with this. Speaking of classless, something that I, I enjoy a little bit, and it, and it happens a couple times in, in, with the tribal challenges in this season, is this more than I think a lot of other challenges in the past. First of all, I love a lot of the challenges here, so I'm not really dissing them in that sense. But what I love about this challenge is they're like, okay, you all need to get in the boat and paddle out and you know get a thing and then come back, and, and then you need to you know pull the boat up with the logs. But like... Four of you are going to go up and pull with the rope, and the other parts, uh, most of the rest of you are going to, you know, push the boat along and, and, you know, reposition the logs so that you can get it going. But one of you is just going to hold on to that fire, and your sole responsibility is right at the end when the boat's across the finish line. You just have to run up and light the torch. This season, more than anything else, has like one person whose sole responsibility is to do something really freaking easy. <laughs> like in that one challenge, it's just all you have to do is cut the rope to release the, the cart to go down the track. It's just like. <laughs> yeah. All you have to do is this one thing. It's like, Lydia, we have a job for you. Yeah. This is called the scout role. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, f- I feel like, and this is, this will also show kind of the physical wear and tear of these challenges too, because the men don't, you know, they, they all go to the ropes and they pull it along and that's all fine and dandy. But these women get bruised transporting this boat. I'm surprised that Amy didn't first roll her ankle here because, or any other woman, because these boats are, and logs are like rolling over people's feet. Margaret's getting knocked into the boat. This is like, like, like we said before, it is physical right off the bat. Steph gets stuck. Cindy gets stuck. Like it's on our, uh, uh, like on our thing. Danny like takes a tumble into the boat. Like it's, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> you know, what's funny is, you know, in all the years I've been writing about Survivor, there's only one time I ever applied to be on the show and it was for Guatemala. And I thank God every single night that I didn't get on Guatemala because it's <laughs> such a brutal season. Yeah, this is, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know if you took any, like, members of the pre, like, if you put, like, Patricia on this, on this season, uh, like, if, or, you know, if, if you put Sonia on this season, like, I do they would not make it through that hike. I think they, they, they very much lucked out, or they purposely cast these people that knew, uh, with, with the constraints of, like, who would survive an 11-mile hike. Yeah, can you imagine, like, Austin or Skinny Ryan out there? <laughs> Like Skinny Ryan would have perished. He would have perished. That's as Andrew says. I can just see like Andrew's smirk, like in the Guatemalan Jones. I just I just saw him over there. It was just sick whip noodle. <laughs> yeah. In retrospect, this challenge wasn't necessarily fair. Like you know, this is this seems like one that Nakum would probably win on paper nine times out of ten, but. I think that Gary was displayed some good leadership. I think that the 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 Shaw guys that were pulling the 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 boat did a pretty good job with that. Um, but also the fact that, you know, all of the strong men on Nakum, except for Brandon were like done basically. So it was just good timing on that. So, so Yasha gets to, gets to plot a victory, minimal assistance from Steph. So good for you, Steph, you won a challenge. Well, she starts crying. Yeah, she does. This is the first tribal council. It's the first time she has ever not gone to tribal council. Just think about that. Yeah, she didn't need to go back to immunity anymore. The, yeah, she didn't have to go back to immunity. The first 
tribal immunity challenge that she's ever won. <laughs> but you knew it was going to be one thing, and I and I sort of am glad because, like I said, Bobby John was sort of the Yoko Ono, the the well, not really the Yoko Ono, but like the Ringo, like the the lesser of the two stars that came back. Like, yeah, we like Bobby John, but we all like Stephanie more, and so you knew that one of them, one of them was going to win. Right. And it's like in your head, you're kind of like, I kind of want Steph to get the win. And she did get the win this time. So it's a better story. It's a better better story. story. Yeah. Yeah, Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say someone pointed out in the previously on Survivor group that uh, there's a cute little moment after the scene where, you know, Nakum loses the challenge and Bobby John kind of hits himself in the face. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a cutest little like he didn't earn the full ass beating he would have got if he'd won the challenge. He wouldn't have kicked his own ass. So he just has to give himself like a little punch to the face because he didn't earn the big one. It's a total Bobby John moment. Yeah, I, I I love. I was I was I was just about to point that out too. I love it because it's also a fun little callback to Palau as well. And we we really don't see too much of Bobby John beating himself up this season. We see more so Bobby John just wildly celebrating, not so much pounding on himself. Well, I believe the proper term is Bobby John being gay. Yes, or or retarded. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, Steph! Oh my God. <laughs> Stephanie with the words. Man. It, was a di- it was a different time back then, Jay. It was 2005. Yeah. He was so, happy. The, the distant past. <laughs> but yes, it is a better story that Stephanie wins and everyone's happy for her. She finally won her first challenge. So good for her. And I should point out a lot of people don't know this that when Nakum, you know, Jim hurts his arm lifting the, the canoe, the, the boat, it's worse than just an injury. He actually tears his bicep. Like he yeah. really rips that muscle. So it's more than just the. Uh, the illnesses and everyone being tired on the coom. Like one of their lifters tore his bicep, which has got to be painful. And, that, and that's, I think, contributes to the fact that this post-immunity challenge scene pre-tribal council, whether it was because of editing time due to the hike taking up the majority of the airtime, but it seems pretty cut and dry with Jim. I mean, the we get like a little bit of confessionals here and there. Brooke says something about like, maybe we should get rid of one of the sick guys like Bobby John or Blake instead of Jim. Uh, but it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty, you know, clear case that B- Jim snapped his bicep. He, I don't think how, he'd be able to last in the game that long anyway. You know, that's something that requires surgery. And, yeah. you know, on the amazing race, a guy was able to last like maybe five days before he had to get surgery. And I don't I do not think they would want Jim still in the game. So this was this is a, a pretty cut and dry ending to this episode. You know, what's funny is if you watch on the DVD, they have uh, Jim's early show interview and his, his final words and stuff. He goes on and on in his early show interview about the one thing he was worried about when he went out to play Guatemala. Do you guys know what his biggest worry was? And this will make you laugh because nobody's ever thought about this before. I was it. I don't know. Oh, yeah, people would compare him to Tom Westman because he was a firefighter. I was about to point that out. He's a retired fire chief, and I yeah. thought like he's like the nega Tom in that yeah. like he he wasn't able to do anything. But that's the thing. He was so worried when he went out there that you know Tom had just won Survivor, and he thought everyone would just associate him with Tom, and he'd be too big of a threat. Which is not Jim's legacy in Survivor. No. So we get to Tribal Council, uh, which, as Jay pointed out, is freaking amazing. It's in the North Acropolis. And there's, there's nothing too noteworthy of Tribal Council. The one thing I will point out is this is the first of many Judd rants. Uh, and I think this was the one that really people, a lot of people on the Internet picked up with at the time of, like, who is this Judd guy? Where I think uh, Jeff asked him, you know, Judd, do you feel vulnerable about being sick? And Judd just goes on this huge retort about you know he was all on his back for one second and how he can, he can be doing freaking backflips right now if he if he wants to yeah 
And I got to point out here that this is pretty well known. This has been talked about a lot over the years that Probst and Judd did not get along. Like that. I know that Probst has said that Judd was one of his least favorite contestants ever because how many issues they had and how many fights they had at tribal council. And this is something that Rafe pointed out to me as well, that it was always, always an issue at tribal council that Judd hated the way Probst would ask questions. Judd would accuse Probst of trying to steer the narrative. He would always go on a little rants and, they just did not get along whatsoever. And this is kind of one example you see on the screen here where Jud- Probes is like, I just asked a question, and Judd is already ranting. So that, this is something that will happen all season long. Yeah, pretty, right. cut, pretty cut and dry tribal council for the most part. I mean, and I think that this is, in a way, I mean, I don't know total timing, and I'm not calling total conspiracy here, but this is really the first time you know, like I said, Guatemala has opened this box now where we have returnees in this game with new people. And I mean, Jeff says at the beginning, he says to the people, look, you can use them as a tool and, and keep them in the game and use their experience with Survivor to help your tribe out. Or it's an easy first vote. You just vote them off. You know, they, they played the game before, they're done, you vote them off. And to me, honestly... You know, I think that the smart thing to do, and I mean, I think that with all the seasons of returnees and newbies coming back, it just seems like a smart thing. You should probably vote these people off right away. Yeah. You know, I know that they provide you with some sort of advantage, but as we've seen, more often than not, one of those returnees makes it to the end. It's just they have either the personality, the the sway, or or just the experience level needed to make it to the end. And it's like... The problem is, is that you have Bobby John and Steph, and yeah, Bobby John's name was bandied about here in Nakum for this episode one tribal council. But you know, Steph's able to survive, and the the thing is, is that Bobby John and Steph are both very strong physical players, and the fact that this was such a physically demanding opening to the season, I think that helped them stay in the game for a couple of days. And it's like once you get in for a couple of days, then you can sort of make alliances, and you know, then that, then that whole thing sort of goes away. But it's like it just looking back on it, it's like yeah, Jim tore his bicep and he sort of mercy killed him out of the game. But it's like Bobby John could have been the first one to go. And and really, I mean, okay, it's Bobby John. He's not really a, a strategic threat on any level. But it's like, you know, it would have been great, you know, if they had set the precedent and just voted Bobby John first vote out of this game. Might be different for returnees coming back for other seasons. Yeah, and I think the producers probably knew that was going to be a problem, which is one of the reasons they wanted to cast Bobby John and Stephanie, because they're such sympathetic players. Like, you don't want to vote Stephanie out first because you feel bad for her. And Bobby John is such a hard worker. Like, you don't want to get rid of the guy who's going to carry all your firewood for the next three months or 39 days or whatever. So, I and, and again, this is something that, that came up a lot when I used to talk to Rafe about Guatemala when it first when he first came back. I'm like, what was it like having Stephanie there? Was she really as big like a god as it appeared on TV? And he said, well, to some of the girls it was, but it was very much a case of we're not going to let this turn into the Stephanie show because Rafe pointed out, you know, when you get cast on Survivor, you go through all this uh, pregame stuff where they uh, isolate you, they you know, quarantine you, they put you in a hotel for seven days, you're not allowed to talk to anybody. So you've gone through this whole process where you're the cast. You all know each other, you're all kind of a thing, and you've bonded. And then all of a sudden, Stephanie shows up the first day, and Ray said, yeah, it's great that she's here and we like her, but like, we were not going to let her win. This was not her show. This was our show. We had already bonded, and she was already an outsider. So... I totally agree with you. They should vote these people out first. And I know that sentiment is there that Rafa said, absolutely, like you don't want this person to take over your season because they're not your cast. They're someone else. But she was such a sympathetic figure. I can't imagine anybody could have voted Stephanie out first at that point. It just would have been too heartless. 
Yeah, it's weird that the stigma nowadays when you bring on returning players to compete with new players like uh, Survivor Philippines or even a fans versus favorite season is an example where fans are like, oh, that's so unfair for the new people. They're just going to get trounced. Whereas back in those days, I personally felt when Stephanie and Bobby John came back, I'm like, oh, that's so unfair to Stephanie and Bobby John. They're just going to yeah. be the first ones kicked off. But yeah. that turned out to completely not be the case. And I think one of the faults of that may be these extremely physical challenges you know, maybe if it was Palau and it was more like a, of a puzzle-oriented type of thing or mixed in with, with some of those more physical challenges, maybe they would fare a better chance. Maybe Nakum would say, oh, we have Brandon, we have Judd, we have Blake, let's get rid of Bobby John. But since they started off with this 11-mile hike followed by the challenge where it's just pulling a large object, I think they're like, okay, if the challenges are going to be like this, we're just going to keep Bobby John. Yeah. And I always thought they tried their best to keep Stephanie by intentionally, intentionally putting her on the tribe with a bunch of weak females. Like they're mm. like, well, you're going, you're going to the producers are going to be like, well, you're going to want to keep Stephanie. I mean, who do you want, Brianna, Morgan? I don't think so. So it's one of those. They, I think they specifically stacked it so she had a chance to get past that early vote. Well, let's uh, let's get into some Yasha episodes because I mean, I I I do love Nakum. I was I was personally rooting for Nakum at the time, but I feel like Yasha just has is kind of the more interesting tribe on the whole, just because of all these characters that we have. Uh, I, we we start off a little bit in episode two with Nakum wandering back in the dark to find the trail. Uh, but unlike Oolong, they're able to <laughs> successfully find their way back to camp. Uh, and, and you know, Margaret gives this... this Margaret has a, a very interesting way of speaking. And we'll, we'll probably get to this a little bit more in the Double Tribal Council episode. But she has this like, really odd quote where she talks about how, you know, now that they've gone to Tribal Council, they have this emotional pain in, in addition to the physical pain that they're feeling. Yes. So as we... Uh, as we uh, as we cut back to Yasha, uh, Jamie has this fun quote, and we didn't really hear too too much from Jamie in the first episode. But Jamie is a, a delightful character as well, and I love his rundown of how diverse his tribe is—not diverse by race, obviously, uh, but diverse by occupation. Uh, and he calls himself a bum. Uh, he brings up the fishmonger, the landscaper, the cop, magician's uh, assistant, the gay guy. I yeah. think he just calls Rafe the gay guy. The gay guy. <laughs> that's the best which, occupation which, which is an occupation yes <laughs> they should have just put that under Rafe's name on the screen Rafe Judge oh gay guy gay guy uh, <laughs> that's so yeah J- J- we have some fun confessionals here and we, we get a lot of talk in, in this episode especially about how Yasha has really bonded into this family about how they've it's interesting because that they've kind of become this like happy fun tribe when as we'll find out in like a couple of episodes that's going to completely flip flop when like we'll see in a few episodes that Yasha is like completely frowning, Ugh. sullen. They're like, we're not, we're not going to smile until we win something. Which is, and I and I and I hate to say this, but I'm going to say it. It's 100% Stephanie. Like <laughs> she is. You know, it, here's the thing. You know, I guess you need, sort of need to bring it up. If Stephanie and Bobby John are coming back on Survivor, which of those two do you want on your tribe? Bobby John. Yeah, I would say Bobby John too. And the thing is, is that Bobby John's a terrible survivor player, like a terrible survivor player. And Stephanie is also not a very good survivor player. But Bobby John, at least, like what Bobby John needed more than anything at Palau was he needed leadership. Like you just are like, hey, you work around camp. And when we go to challenges, I just want you to run your head through that wall over there. Can you do that for me? <laughs> and he's like, well, sir, I think I can't do that. But it's like Bobby John, the, where Bobby John really has faults is like at the vote because Bobby John doesn't have the idea of like, 
bonding with people and like voting in a block like Bobby Jones like well sir I will vote for this person and it's like okay well now you're not understanding this aspect of the game whereas Stephanie gets that but like I think that Stephanie's problem is that a lot of times she's just like well I need to lead I need to be the leader and it's like your ideas don't win challenges and it's proven. It, it, it is something that is happening. And th- yes, she won her first immunity challenge in the previous episode, in episode one of Guatemala. And it's because literally she had to paddle a boat and then she wasn't part of the pulling team. Like it was Gary up there in the pulling team. And yeah, she was helping running the logs. But like that's just a, a repetitive task that it's like, okay, you have to get a log, put it in front of the boat and then help push the boat along. Like, you know, there's not a whole ton of strategy involved in that. It's just do it. Yeah. You know, and they did it and they were in better shape. And it's like, I would rather have Bobby John. It's like Stephanie is going to start to try to, you know, influence tribe things. And it's like, I think that that's where things go south for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this comes up big in a couple episodes when they have to throw war clubs at a target. Yeah. That I, I've heard. In fact, uh, Brooke talks about this in an interview, how how what a terrible team player Stephanie is, that she has to go first, she has to get the spotlight, and she's going to stand out there no matter how many times she misses because she has to go first. So it's one of those things that, yeah, you're absolutely right. She is not a very good team player because she thinks it's all about her, and she has to be the star. She's called Stephanie for a reason this season. <laughs> although although this, this scene that you're talking about, Mike, this the scene where there, you know, Jamie is describing the diversity of his tribe, this is again one of these Gary Hogaboom, Gary Hawkins oh landscape of things. <laughs> but what I love is that Gary gives this confessional that is like, oh my god, it, it, it's, it, it is like my whole life right now. It could... <laughs> Like this confessional could be my Patronus. It's like it's 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 Gary Hawkins, and, and he and he says, you know, I, I'm not going to tell him that I was a quarterback. You know, uh, I you know, what if they ask me what I'm going to do? Fifteen, what I did fifteen years ago. I'm like, who asks that randomly? Yeah, like who's <laughs> just like, hey Mario, what'd you do fifteen years ago? By the way, <laughs> I also love the fact that he didn't like in all this contingency planning he did. He never came up with like an alternative plan B of lying for what he did fifteen years ago. Like, and if someone brought it up in the conversation, he'd be like, uh, uh. Ooh, oh, oh, oh no, they're oh. on to me. <laughs> I played Canadian football. I wasn't in the NFL, but I was a Canadian football quarterback. I got all three of those downs converted. <laughs> Did you ever hear of the USFL? <laughs> yes. The XFL. Oh, yeah. I played for the Cowboys, but I was a linebacker. I wasn't a quarterback at all. That's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Uh, I love that. He's just like, oh, what if they ask what I did 15 years ago? I'm like, what an oddly specific thing. <laughs> what if that was a question at like the switch in a couple of episodes? Yeah. Like, who, what did everyone do 15 years ago? <laughs> you just see just Gary being like, oh, damn it, Jeff. <laughs> just flop sweat on his brow. <laughs> uh, but all, of, all of Gary, I mean, he's just like, and, and the, here's the thing. Gary is, is local to me. Like I live, I live in uh Western Michigan. Like he's, he's, he's the Western Michigan representative of survivor. Like he is the guy closest to me and like, Oh God, it's Gary. He's the best. Is he the marshal of like all your parades and stuff out there? No, he really isn't, but he should be. Okay. I, <laughs> Just, I, I, I would, I, I would be first for be like Gary. <laughs> <laughs> like Drew Carey identifies with Cleveland. When you think of Western Michigan, it's all Hogaboom slash Hawkins. <laughs> it's all Hogaboom. Be like Gary. I have I, my lawn needs some work. <laughs> I would see. I would watch the Gary Hogaboom show of like just Gary 
working like you know like working in an office trying to pretend he wasn't a quarterback does he put on glasses like clark kent so nobody can recognize him yeah oh larry thank god you're here <laughs> larry hogaboom <laughs> chad hogaboom's evil twin you see like the company's like we have a uh, we have a flag football against our rival company uh, we, we need a quarterback gary i i oh god i don't know <laughs> I definitely did not do this 15 years ago. <laughs> so as uh, we cut to Nukum, we get a little shot, some some scene, a scene about Blake. Uh, Blake is still not, uh, no, understandably not recovering from the fact that he was kind of uh, almost died out there on the trail only a couple days ago. Uh, but Brandon just kind of tells him to to man up, and and to to his effect, we do actually see him man up in this reward challenge. He becomes as just Judd calls him the the big hero of this challenge. Some might say the golden boy of the challenge. Yes, the uh, the titanium male, if yes. you will, silver lad, silver lad. Uh, so let's get let's get to the challenge. This is a this is a, a a rope spider web, and it's a pretty simple challenge. It's just grab a bag, untie it. There's not even anything in the bag. Uh, you just have to untie the bag, climb up a ladder, and bring it back. And the, there's only a, really a couple of highlights here. One of them being Rafe just f- fucks up this challenge <laughs> completely. <laughs> You can't get up the ladder, like because you know there's the spider web. It's an it's it's over water, and so you basically need to navigate through the web, untie a bag, and then you drop in the water, and then you have to climb up a, a little rope ladder to get back to the little uh, springy. Uh, Was it the little rope plat- uh, like platform? Like a net, yeah, yeah, a the, net, little, yeah. the little net platform they have to go across, and it's like Rafe. You know, he he doesn't get a bag. And then he falls into the water, and like the the way Jeff describes the challenge is that everyone has to at least attempt it once, and then if you know once you do that, then anyone can go out there for bags. And Rafe becomes the first person to like just biff it and go off the course and not get a bag. But then he can't get up the ladder. Like then it's like eight minutes of Rafe trying to get up the ladder. It's like a Bobby John impersonation. All right. So I asked Rafe about that one. That was one of the things, and I said, "What was going on?" He said, "Well." What they don't show there is that a couple people in the game had dysentery because of the living conditions already. Like, you're only four or five days in, they already have, like, issues. And that was one. He said, I was really weak. There's a couple people that were real weak. I just could not get up that ladder because I had no strength. But he goes, but they only kind of focused on me in the challenge as opposed to some of the other people that are having problems. And Rafe said, I always asked and, you know, wondered why they did that. Like, why would you just highlight me? And he said, the producer said, well, because we wanted to show you how to big comeback and became a challenge beast later. So we highlighted how weak you were at the start. But yeah, he said that was all just dysentery, but he wasn't the only one that was sick. So there was no connection to Rafe's gut? There was, well, yeah. It was passed down from Lex, yes. It also seemed to me very funny that at the beginning of the challenge, you know, because there's things along the whole spider web, and it's like, they go to the the like the near ones first. Like you would think that you would try to go when you have all the strength to go to the ones that were further away. I don't know. Yeah, I did. It was interesting. They found the one challenge that Morgan, the magician, magician's assistant, would be good at. Like she's all small and blendy, bendy, and flexible. They found the one thing she's probably better than anybody else in the game. Yeah, it's interesting, and they bring up later in the episode when it's when it's Morgan versus Lydia of like, well, Morgan, I mean, she does really well in these challenges. Like, she did well in climbing these, this rope spiderweb. I don't know how many times they're going to bring this challenge back that she'll lead the team to victory. <laughs> she did. She did well in be a magician's assistant. Yeah, yeah it's 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 very weird. It, it sort of goes across, you know, what is out there and how long things actually take versus what we see as well. Like they didn't really show Lydia struggling in this challenge. Like Lydia went out there and she retrieved a bag and 
it's not presented to us that she did it in a rather quick time, but, you know, there isn't, you know, Jeff going, oh, my God, Lydia, slowest person ever. Like, you know, Lydia just goes out there and gets a bag. And you sort of get the idea that she didn't, like I said, she didn't, you know, wasn't super quick, but you also didn't get the impression that she was, like, super slow either. Yeah. And so, yeah, okay, you can see that she slowed them down on the hike, but I don't think that she was necessarily the only person on Yasha that slowed them down on the hike. Then she didn't do much in the... Uh, immunity challenge, but she was tasked with the hold on to the flame and then run up there at the end and light it, which she did, and they won the challenge. And then they're doing this challenge where she at least got a bag, as opposed to Rafe and and other things like that. And it's like, then later on in the episode, they're like, well, Lydia's a liability in challenges. I'm like, really? She is? Like, They didn't show that. On on the one hand, I buy it. On the other hand, you haven't shown me that. Like, it doesn't seem like she is. Yeah, there's a lot of tell, don't show in Guatemala. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that, which is Very the number one. Much so. Yeah, story writing 101, don't do that. It's always show, not tell. Yeah. So, Nakum does win. Uh, it actually gets, you know, for all Rafe does and dysentery, climbing up a ladder and everything, it, it, it comes actually comes down, like, very, very close. Blake and Brian get the last bags, and they're, like, neck and neck. But Blake, surprisingly, has the second wind and is able to eke out a win. Uh, and uh, Nakum wins fishing equipment, and as Brandon says, they get up at the butt crack of dawn, and they, they're, they're rolling in fish. But Yasha uh, gets a little creative with their food. And this is really the, the desperation food mode scene at Yasha, where they're digging up grasshoppers and roots and minnows and ants. They're going to they're gonna try to eat everything, except Stephanie. <laughs> yes. Stephanie will not deign to eat the ants and the grasshoppers like everybody else. She's a little above that. I love that she's like, well, apparently they're going to eat ants because apparently ants have protein in them and i'm like yes steph they do like that's yeah, it's a, not apparently apparently like <laughs> not sort of stuff i i consulted a scientician before i went out <laughs> and he said yeah let's point out that rafe is a nature trail guide so he does kind of know this stuff yeah. so when he says we can probably eat that he's probably right and you know, uh, kind of coupling off what we were just talking about with Lydia, the big balance that they, they they keep going back to is that like Lydia is a challenge liability, quote unquote, but she's amazing at camp, and we really get to see some of that in like this little fishing cove idea that Lydia comes up with, which is basically build a sand wall, cover it with burlap, and then like the fish will will swim in, but they can't get back out, like. Even though there aren't too many fish in the lake, I guess in this case it's helpful to have a, a fishmonger and a nature trail guide on your tribe, considering yeah. that like it, you didn't win anything, but you're still able to find some sort of sustenance, again, unless you're Stephanie. You know, Lydia's from the Northwest. We all know that trick. That's how to catch little fish when you're at the beach. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I know you, you blue state New Englanders wouldn't get that. No, I'm more of a Brian Corden, so I... <laughs> I'm yeah, no, it's a cool, yeah, it's a cool little trick, and you can see them already starting to build up the Lydia as lovable underdog storyline here, where, you know, she's not good at challenges, she's tiny, she's what four foot nine or something, she said, but you know, she's going to do her best to make sure they all have food and prove her value to the tribe, and this is one of those neat little character scenes here. Also, she's a fishmonger, like you would, you know, I mean, I know that fishmonger is not the. I'm the expert in all things fish, but it's like you know the fact that she's got some technique to you know get some minnows. It's like yeah, that's expected. Absolutely. And it's one of those things, you know, if they were to catch a big fish or a real fish, she would know how to clean it, cut the fillets out and everything. Like she would have a very useful skill once they start getting like fish to eat and things like that. She she wouldn't be she wouldn't waste any fish like the other people would. Would she be like uh, Nakum and use Bobby John's weird skin on his shoulders as bait for the fish? (laughs) 
I, I'm not saying she would. I'm not saying she wouldn't. That's Lydia. <laughs> Lydia is the classic wild card. <laughs> so we get back to Nakum, and there are two big uh, thing takeaways from this scene at Nakum. One is that Judd is looking for his own big hero moment, uh, which he'll he'll be able to actually get conveniently in this cha- in this next challenge, which is literally stand in one place and be very heavy. Uh, <laughs> So he's he's going to be great at that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it was great that Morgan did good at the B Morgan challenge, and now Judd's about to do good at the B Judd challenge. Yeah, exactly. They're almost tailoring these uh, these challenges for these contestants. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, go ahead. I was going to say Stephanie's going to have the have a lot of heart challenge coming up. Uh, and the the major thing that we'll see immediate ramifications for is that Danny uh, points out how you know athletic Shaw is, and she just casually throws the conversation that yeah, I'm a sportscaster, and I know who Gary Hogaboom is. Uh, which I mean, I guess according to your logic, Jay, she must be a very uh, very deep seated sportscaster if she knows who Gary Hogaboom is right off the bat and purely by appearance. In preparation for this podcast, I was actually talking to my wife about this because okay, I. I was a sports geek for a while in my life. And granted, I was not a, a expert on, you know, 1980s to 1990s backup quarterbacks in the NFL. That's, that's not something that I was an expert at. But again, I know quite a bit about sports. I don't know why. I just do. And I had never heard of this guy before going in there. And, and granted, maybe I should have. But on the other hand, I don't think that I'm necessarily wrong in doing so. And, and the thing is, is that I just... I just went. I just told my wife. I was like, I just find it so, like, I I I totally bought for a million years that somebody fed Danny the information that yeah, Gary's a quarterback. But you know what? I've softened through my years. I'm totally legitly by that Danny knew who Gary Hogamum was. But to me, I'm like, how freaking lucky is that? Like, I know that she's a sportscaster. I know that they cast her. You know, this is real world casting. Like, what's that SNL? real world parody that's fantastic where you like the one guy and he's like i'm the one thing and i don't like eskimos and the next person that's on the screen is like an eskimo and you know oh yeah 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 you know it's the whole putting people conflict in the house and it's like they put the they put the former quarterback on one team and they put the sportscaster who excels in 80s to 90s football on the other side you know but like at the same time oh my god i can't believe that they put somebody on the season that like is Intimately familiar with the career of Gary Hogaboom. Yeah, Danny's just such an interesting person in general. Just the, her, some of her little quirks. I mean, she's like a what Miss USA or something, Miss America contestant. But like, if you look at her audition tape, all she does is talk about her guns and her Glock and how she loads her guns. Like, and she says her friends. Well, I wrote this down. Her friends' nickname for her is uh, Redneck Barbie. She's just an interesting person in that, in that you totally buy that she would know who Gary Hogaboom is, and she's like, hey. 15 years ago, that guy used to play quarterback. Yeah, it's like, on the one hand, I, I totally buy that she knows who it is. I'm not trying to uh, disparage her knowledge set, but I'm yeah. just sitting there going, like, that is an oddly specific person to know. <laughs> you know, true. like, it, it, but she knew him. You know what I mean? Like, again, I know who the backup quarterback, I mean, I, I, I live in Michigan. I root for the Detroit Lions. I know. God have mercy on my soul. I understand. That's fine. We're losers. I get it. I know who the backup quarterback of the Lions is. I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. Like well, the, he's also, the current, he's also not eight feet tall like Hogaboom. I understand that fact, but like you know, at the same time, I know a bunch of the names of the backup quarterbacks. Like I guess that's the name recognition. Like Gary Hogaboom, there's name recognition there. But if you you know, name me the backup quarterback to some of these uh, NFL teams today. I could name them. Pick them out of a lineup. Well, now that's where things get dicey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's very true. And I think 
I mean, we'll we'll obviously talk more about Danny as the season progresses. And you're totally right, Mario. This is such an interesting edit on her. And I think the the big thing that's come out of a lot of discussion over the years is that uh, Danny has a weird edit and a very under the radar edit because she did not give any sort of insight to her strategy into production, and that might be a reason why they just didn't really edit her having any sort of strategy until like episode, a little bit in episode five, but not until like the final six or so. And it's weird for this first group group of episodes, we're really only going to see Danny involved with this storyline and that's it. And that's weird. Well, yeah, Danny's weird because she doesn't fit into any classic stereotypes of survivor characters. Yeah. that's It's hard to really pigeonhole what she is. I think she's interesting. I love, I mean, she's all gangly. She's all arms and legs. She's good at sports. She's a total tomboy, but she's like a Miss America pageant or contestant. But yeah, she's just she doesn't fit into any classical archetype, and she just really doesn't play into any stereotype you can attribute to her. So it's that's one of the things I think they had a problem with her. You're absolutely right, though, Mike. Like she she just is invisible for these first few episodes. They don't give her a lot of confessionals. But what's so sad is that once you start getting confessionals, I mean, and you see her interacting with her tribe a couple of episodes down the road, you can see that she's there and she's taking everything in. Like you can see why she's so dangerous in a game like Survivor, and why I think that if they ever brought Danny back for any any season, I think Danny would do very well again uh, because she integrates herself so well, and you can see that she's you know with it. And, you know, smart and always thinking. But in these first few episodes, then it's just, I know Gary Hogaboom. And that's, it's like, I guess what they're showing is, you know, how perceptive she is that she's picking out who Gary is because, you know, Gary's got everybody else snowed. Yes. So let's, right, uh, let's okay. I was going to say, let's not gloss over Judd's fantastic quote here where he's complaining about, uh, you know, Blake just laying there and resting and being mothered by uh, Margaret all day. And Judd's like, and I'm like, damn. How much more relaxing does this dude need, man? That's the best. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The first of many great Judd quotes we will have. Actually, no, Jay had the first one. That's the second one. I want to see him like, I don't know. I want to see Judd like at a spa (laughs) and just like going around and be like, man, why are these people laying around? So let's uh, let's go. Let's go to the immunity challenge. uh, The, as Jeff calls it, a, a good old fashioned tug of war. Uh, where the the first part of the challenge is, is pretty useless. It's everyone is kind of has a free for all, pull your tribe to the end of the end zone uh, as you know within a certain amount of time, which ends up of course being a wash because despite having Judd on Nakum, everything's pretty much even. Uh, but the, the, it really gets interesting when it goes into a sudden death when it's just one on one battles. Which I love. I love that they had that. They were like, well, we're going to have the whole tribe do this tug of war, but in, it's going to have a time limit. And in the event that there's not a winner of the tug of war, we're going to go to individual battles. Like they were like, there's no way that one tribe is pulling the other tribe across the line. Like they just knew it. So they were like, we're going to have this first part of the challenge where all we're going to do is basically tire you out. I love that in classic Survivor style, they make it a tug of war, but a tug of war with an attack zone where you can go up and beat the shit, about on, uh, beat the shit out of people on the other tribe during the tug of war. And like you said, Jay, I mean, there's there's not a chance that any tribe is going to be able to drag the other tribe over in like 15 minutes. But damn, if Bobby John isn't going to try his heart out to do it. Bobby John, I'd like you to run your head through that wall over there. Well, sir, I think I will run my head through that wall. This may be the all-time greatest Bobby John moment. It's, if nothing else, it's the greatest Bobby John picture. Oh, the, 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 just the image of him just freaking out as he's trying to pull him. So, yeah. Yeah, it's like his, 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 it's like if you if you want an alternative cover to Apocalypse Now, look at this picture of Bobby John bug-eyed dragging himself through the mud. 
And if you, it's funny if you look at that picture, you see Margaret staring at him like, "What the fuck are you doing, Bobby John?" <laughs> oh my god, it's so good. But yeah, no, I mean, Nakum gets a, a pretty sizable lead, probably due in part to Bobby John just going ape shit. But they decide uh, they don't really go anywhere, so they go to the one-on-one sudden death rounds. And the first one is Judd versus Gary. And uh, right before the it starts, Danny just Danny, Danny just throws a, a little a little truth bomb in there right before the match starts. <laughs> What I love is that she disparages him too. Like, you know, she says to Judd in the, in the challenge, like, you're like a linebacker. He's just a quarterback. And she said before, she was like, yeah, Gary, he's a, he's a former quarterback in the NFL. But, you know, quarterbacks don't have to be that athletic. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the second time she's done that. It's earlier in the team challenge when she and Brian are like scuffling in the middle when they're like wrestling. That's when she's telling him, we find out later, she was telling Brian right to his face, by the way, that Gary guy on your team, he's a former NFL quarterback. So she's doing everything she can to out Gary here. Yeah, uh, and so man, I don't know if that throws Gary off. Probably combined with the fact that Judd is just a tank in this challenge, but like Judd is able to like make it consider- considerably farther. And the way these sudden death rounds work is that who's ever the furthest along after a certain amount of time wins. And Judd just just gets to a certain point where he's good, and Gary just goes for broke and just <laughs> runs back and decides to tackle him. I don't I don't understand the logic of doing that was, like at the last minute. I don't understand it either because like Judd had gotten to the point where he could use the rope for leverage, so he's like slowly pulling. You know, he's got. You know, he's very clearly on his side of the map. And then Gary's like, I'm going to stop pulling in my direction and I'm going to run over and like tackle Judd right near his flag because. <laughs> Maybe he thought he'd knock him unconscious or something. <laughs> drag him back. And then, in and like then, and then you have to drag a, a, a dead weight jug across oh, yeah. or Judd across the. Oh my God. That's the thing. Knocking Judd on his side does not make him any lighter. How many damn hours can this guy be unconscious, man? <laughs> You just got landscaped, bitch. <laughs> so Judd gets the first flag for Nakum, and then the second round is uh, Brandon versus Jamie, and Brandon gets it pretty handily. And then the third round, which is very interesting, is Judd versus Jamie, and it looks for a second that Jamie is gonna is gonna be able to grab the flag and make things a little more interesting. But then Judd has his big hero moment, and he's able to make his surge in like the last five seconds of the challenge and just pull ahead enough to win. What's funny, it's all the relaxing in the challenge that got him to the glory. So just like he was accusing <laughs> Jamie, it's all that relaxing, man. Exactly. So, so this is sort of what I was going to start bringing up. First of all, it's documented in Survivor. Like when we see a challenge, it's like, oh, it's going to three. Like sometimes in Survivor, it, the challenge actually went to five, but they sort of pare it down for television uh, and stuff like that. Like I don't know if this actually went to three or if there were, you know, they had to go to five and there were more rounds in there. I don't really know. It just seems very odd because Jamie went the second time against uh, against Brandon, and I mean Brandon just thoroughly schools Jamie in this challenge. Like this is this is the most lopsided of all the of all the ones is that Brandon basically drags Jamie over. Brandon physically gets the flag. Like in the first round and the third round, the the winner is just basically on the rule that they were the most on their side by the end. But Brandon literally just manhandles Jamie to the point where he can walk over and grab the flag and win that point for Nakum. So then like the next time they send Jamie back out? I don't know, but what are the other options though to go up against Judd? You're gonna send Brian out there or Rafe? Rafe. <laughs> I would Maybe try Amy. something. I mean, you might have had a shot. I don't know. I, I I don't know, Mike. I'm not saying that necessarily is, but, but like this is the beginning of like, yeah, Jamie. He's a big strong guy, and it's like Jamie just gets 
schooled in all of these sort of challenges. And they send Jamie back out against Judd, and he gets like two inches over on his line. And you can see like Jeff counting down. You can see Judd shaking his head. You're like, Judd knew that if he just, he's not going anywhere, and he could pull Jamie whenever he wants. And he just pulls Jamie like two or three feet, you know, in a couple seconds and wins the challenge. And I'm just like, well, there goes my faith in Jamie. But they're going to keep trotting Jamie out in all these challenges, and he's going to lose spectacularly most of the time. And I'm like, well, maybe going to the Jamie train's not exactly where you need to go here. No, the, J- the Jamie train is a very decrepit train. It, <laughs> there's bums living on it. <laughs> so, uh, N- so Nakum wins, and they're they're starting their their challenge domination that they'll have for the next couple of episodes. Uh, and as they get back to camp, you know, we talked before about returning players being brought up as targets, and it actually seems for like a millisecond that Jamie is targeting Stephanie, but then Gary immediately turns down that notion. Uh, Mike, it's actually a millimeter of a second. Ah, my my apologies. For like a millimeter of a second, man. <laughs> but yeah, Jamie's pushing to get Stephanie out of there, but it's just not going to happen because they need her. There's too many weak females. They just can't get rid of Stephanie when there's people like Lydia and Morgan and Brianna clogging up the vote still. Yeah, so with that plan kind of abandoned... Uh, there, there's a little bit of a some some tussle here with Brian finding out about, you know, what Danny told him about the whole quarterback thing, and of course Gary starts in his long line of just flagrantly denying any accusations that he ever played football at any point in time in his life. <laughs> yeah, did I play football or a quarterback 14 years ago? No, of course not. That's ridiculous. Not 14. <laughs> what about 15, Gary? Ah, uh, uh, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> What's well, that? Well, what I love is that they just bring it up. They're just like, Gary, were you a quarterback? And he's like, me? Still <laughs> 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 the other Gary. I was asking about Lydia. If Lydia <laughs> played quarterback. He's like, no. I like it. At some point, he's like, I wish I had. Or something like that. But, you know. That would have been awesome if I played for the Cowboys for six years. <laughs> Uh, By the way, we, we were glossing over Stephanie's little tirade here about how dare people would want to vote her off. Because, here we go, one of the most famous Stephanie LaGrosa quotes ever. Why would they vote me off? It's retarded. So thank you, <laughs> Stephanie. The, the inspiration to millions of young girls. I, I think they, uh, they published that one on posters, right? They just have been emblazoned across classrooms. <laughs> they did. It was like the hang in there cat underneath the, the poster <laughs> of Stephanie saying it's retarded to vote me or, off. Or the, the shoot for the moon and you'll land among the stars. <laughs> Yes. Oh boy. Uh, so as we talked about before, it really becomes a choice between Morgan and Lydia, the supposed weakest link in camp versus the supposed weakest link in challenges. And uh, it, it seems at first that Lydia is going to be the one to go. There seems to be a, a contingency that agrees to it. But Brian shows his colors a little bit of being a, a little bit of a strategist. And he decides, oh, no, my goal of today is to not get rid of Lydia. And uh, he, he makes he makes a very good point that they've they've never lost any challenges because of Lydia. Theoretically, the challenges they lost were because of Rafe and because of uh, I, I guess I would say Jamie in this case. Yeah. Uh, so he decides what the plan is to try to get everyone to get rid of Morgan this this tribal council. I have to say, I know Brian is a very popular player among internet people in particular. He's uh, among Survivor Sucks and other message boards. They always love Brian. I've never been the biggest fan of Brian, and every time I watch Guatemala, I'm reminded why. It's because he's one of these guys like Russell that thinks that he is responsible for everything that happens in the game. And this is right here. This is absolute, this narrative, what drives me crazy about him, that 
I'm going to save Lydia. So then Lydia gets spared and he takes credit for it. I totally saved Lydia, even though there's eight other people voting and I'm sure they all have different motives. But yeah, Brian is going to go on his little crusade here where he himself is going to steer the narrative and make it happen like he wants it to happen. Yeah, it, it, it's very weird and it's it's something that's very cacophonous when you watch it because he recognizes that Lydia is going home because, you know, sometimes like I think Lydia sort of knew that, you know, sh- her name was being bandied about. But what Brian does that is positive in this scene is that he recognizes that Lydia is on the chopping block and he talks to Gary and, you know, sees that Gary has got some sway. But then he also goes to Lydia and says, look, Lydia, if you don't say anything, you're going to go home. You know, like he's just like, Lydia, I think you're going home. And Lydia's like, yeah, I think I might go home, too. And Brian's basically like, say something. And that's the one thing that he did was he said to Lydia, say something. But it's like they showed Lydia talking to Gary, basically saying, Gary, don't vote me out. I, I don't want to go home yet. And I'm not saying that that one uh, conversation with Lydia and Gary is, is the turning point. But it's like Lydia went to Gary and said stuff. And it's Gary ultimately that was calling the shots at this point. Yeah. So like it's very funny when Brian's like, I saved Lydia. It's like Gary saved Lydia mm-hmm. ultimately by telling everyone what to do. And Lydia going to Gary might have been the catalyst, and Brian telling Lydia to do that is a catalyst. But that is a very friend of a friend of a friend of a friend telephone purple monkey dishwasher way of saying, yeah, I totally control that vote tonight. It's like, you didn't control Jack, dude. It was Gary that controlled it. Yeah. I was going to say, that's what I take from that scene is that Gary's the one calling the shots. Yeah. That's the only thing I yeah. take from that whole scene. Yeah, Gary's the one that's kind of deciding what's going on. It's almost like he's leading a team. <laughs> yes. But yeah, it's, plays. <laughs> it's interesting here that something I think that Yasha does that's very smart is they don't want to split the vote. They're like, well, we have to get rid of somebody, but we want to appear unified because it's really all about team unity at this point. And this is something that Rafe stressed to me many times when I talked to him about uh, Yasha, that he said, you know, there's, there's really two types of seasons. There's the ones that are ultra strategic, which is everyone's just gunning for strategy from game one, day one, which is like more of the modern seasons. And he said, there's other seasons where it's more relationship-driven, where it's more about who gets along with who, who's friends. And he said, Guatemala was very much a relationship-driven season. Like, Yasha really was very tight. So it was a concerted effort to make it stay tight. And he said, that's something you'll see over and over in the season, that the relationships drive the votes, not so much the strategy. And he said, it's kind of one of those things that a lot of internet fans, they, they don't really understand Survivor. And you'll see this a lot, people on message boards saying, strategy this, strategy that. It's like, strategy really doesn't mean jack shit in Survivor a lot of the times. And Rafe said, in fact, Rafe, that's one thing he pointed out to me. He's like, this is why I was so good at Survivor. He goes, I'm not like the greatest strategist. Like strategy, anybody knows strategy. If you go on the internet, hang out there for a year and watch Survivor, you know strategy. It's like, there's nothing special about strategy on Survivor. He's like, the reason I was so good at Survivor is because people liked me. And when people like you, they tell you the truth and you know what's going on. So he's like, so I knew it was going to happen at every vote because people told me the truth. And that's the key to Survivor is that if people like you and you have relationships with them, you have information and that's currency. So that's one of the things I wanted to point out here that this Yasha wanting to be unified, I'll be friends, I'll, under, I'll trust each other. That's a very important thing here and why they do, they do well later in the game. Well, you can see it in the voting patterns as well. Uh, just for the fact that Jim, uh, you know, was is basically unanimous, other than his vote that he went home, and and with this with this vote here, everyone votes Morgan except for Morgan, right? So like it's 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 a unanimous vote to vote Morgan out, and uh, uh, Guatemala is going to have a lot of these votes, these votes that are very decisive one way, 
and and when a season and i would even say that strategically that's you know people know that like i i totally get your argument there that rafe is saying this is a more relationship driven season than a strategic driven season but even in strategically driven seasons you will see these lopsided votes at tribal council unless you've got hidden immunity idols and then you are splitting votes for you know flushing out idol stakes but this is pre-idol era so you don't necessarily i mean i w- I know we've got one this season. I know. But like, you know, this is, you know, the, the pre-idol era of Survivor. And so splitting votes is not necessarily something that people are doing as much. But it's like, you know, they're on the same page. They're going to vote one way because there's really no reason not to throw a, another vote out for any reason. Yeah. Yeah, yep, I agree. And, and uh, it's interesting. I don't pay too much attention to Jeff's final words uh, after every tribal council but this one is really interesting uh like we said before he he tells you shot that like he's confused because the tribe is unified yet morgan's vote is for all intents and purposes a blind side because morgan really doesn't (laughs) see it coming and it's weird because like jeff almost shows like a negativity towards that in this whereas like you look at modern day jeff and he has said multiple times that like blind sides that's how you play survivor so it's just weird to see this dichotomy of him being like i'm genuinely surprised i don't know if this is how the right way to play the game compare that to now of like you're not playing the game unless you're drawing rocks yeah no it's true and again this goes back to what rafe told me that he thinks this is the season that really kind of broke probes like the conditions were just so horrible with the filming the heat the mosquitoes it was just brutal for everyone and it appears that probes isn't really on his game a lot of the times this season he's a little off for even by probe standards you can kind of see that when you look for it so uh we we lose morgan and this unfortunately begins the string of a few episodes of us kind of getting rid of these uh, unremarkable young women and i don't know if it speaks more to the casting or to the editing choices but we really do not find out too too much about any of these three people and i think it's an it's an unfortunate hit to guatemala's reputation that's usually something when people are talking about like the cast are like oh well you had brooke and brianna and morgan which i think is a little unfair but i guess then it's good to to lose them right off the bat because i don't know how much potential magician's assistant morgan had in the game aside from climbing ropes yeah, I I was watching all their. There's a really good feature on the DVD for Guatemala, which has all their pregame interviews where you get to meet them for the first time. And Morgan's got a little personality in hers. Brianna's got a lot of personality in hers. I kind of like Brianna in her interviews. Brooke, I don't understand why they cast her in the first place, other than she's smart and cute. But there's really nothing distinct about her. She's mm-hmm. the one I always wonder why they even cast her. But Morgan is kind of in that way. She's distinct in that she's cute. She's a magician's assistant. You never see that combination before. <clears throat> Although one of the things that Rafe mentioned to me was that, you know, you think Morgan was so inconsequential watching her on TV, but she was actually kind of the person who brought together the first Yasha Alliance. And he pointed out that the first Yasha Alliance was Amy and Gary, and then Rafe and Stephanie, and then Morgan and Brianna. It was kind of a six-person alliance. And he said Morgan was the one that kind of brought all of us together. She was kind of the linchpin that put everyone in the same alliance, but we ended up having to get rid of her just because she couldn't pull her weight around camp. But she was not as worthless as you think. She was a Survivor fan. She knew how it worked. She just ended up not being particularly important to the story. And we're going to see that right in a row here with Morgan, Brianna, Brooke, that just none of them are really important to the story. Did she have a confessional? I don't know if she ever did, yeah. She had one in the first episode. And she may have had one in the second episode. I'm not sure. Again, the unfortunate thing with the editing of these next few episodes are that we're not going to get like 
especially in these pre-tribal council scenes, we're not going to get too much insight from the person that's going home, uh, which which sucks because I feel like that's a tenet of Survivor. You want to see how this person reacts when their back's against the wall or if they don't think their back's against the wall. But yeah, I, I don't think we got too... I think we got maybe two confessionals from Morgan at most. Yeah, my, my uh, wife was watching Guatemala with me just the other day and, you know, the, the Morgan episode came up and she's like, I have no clue who this Morgan person is. I've never... I don't remember her ever seeing her on Survivor before. So... She gets my wife's vote for the most obscure Survivor player ever. Well, I think so, that it's, it's tough, though, because, uh, and not to tangent too much, but I think I brought it up at the end of the Palau podcast, and I'll bring it up here. It goes to mention, other than Bobby, John, and Stephanie, who are returnees onto this season, so they're not original Guatemalans, but no original Guatemalan has come back and played another season of Survivor. And I think that that is, I mean, I think that that is the only season that is the case uh excluding mm-hmm. like more modern seasons where there hasn't necessarily been a chance for people to return yeah but it's it, you know going back like the first 20 you know three or four or five seasons or so uh, of this show guatemala is the only season where no one has really returned and because of that you know uh, we can argue till we're blue in the face on like should people deserve to return should anyone deserve a return but the problem is is that Morgan could be the most obscure survivor player because in theory, Guatemala is those most obscure survivor season. Yeah. And it's kind of a shame when I was watching those DVD interviews, this is a really good cast. I mean, there's just charisma up and down all over the place. When you see these interviews with Jamie, Judd, Brandon Bellinger, I mean, Judd is particularly hilarious in his pregame interview because he says he gets along with everyone. He's never had a person he doesn't get along with. He's always in a good mood, which is just hilarious when you think of that in retrospect. But yeah, I mean, there's just charisma all over the place in this cast. There's some really good casting choices. Like uh, Jamie, he's one in particular. I think he's a really deep character. We'll get a lot about him. And Amy, I mean, we haven't, we barely even talked about Amy so far, but she's fantastic. I mean, there's a, a scene. She's got that thick Boston accent, and she's got that scene in episode one where they get woken up by the howler monkey in the in the jungle, like the, the morning in, of their hike, the second day. And she's like, it sounded like Predator. So, I mean... <laughs> She's always hitting that Boston accent. So there's some fantastic characters in the season. And yeah, it, it's, it shocks me that nobody's ever brought back, that nobody's even really been considered to bring back. And I just, to me, I just have to think Probst just must not like the season. There's something about the season that gets under his skin. He doesn't like it at all. Mm-hmm. I, I usually use uh, Ashley Ashby from Palau as like the watermark of the replacement value of like, if I replace this person with Ashley Ashby, would this season have gone any worse? And so uh, with these three women, if we replaced it with Ashley Ashby, it would have been, it still would have been fine. So I've considered them like below the Ashley Ashby line. Oh my God. The Ashby line. We need to there coin this. That's fantastic. That's our new thing. Ashby line. That's going to be the, the name of this podcast. No one will have no, any idea what we're talking about. The <laughs> Ashby line. Survivor Guatemala historians, the Ashby line. <laughs> so uh let's let's dive into episode three here so despite getting rid of morgan who is supposedly the weakest link in camp olivia almost immediately points out that there is a more of an all-around weak link in brianna and again we hadn't really heard much about brianna in the past two episodes but this is really going to be her big episode where the editors are like brianna sucks this is why this is how she went home yeah unfortunately brianna has a little bit of personality she's not particularly good at survivor but she's got a little i like her personality when you see her in interviews but yeah, I mean, this is the whole plot of this episode is Brianna sucks, which I feel bad about. But at least she gets confessionals. She so, does. you know, there, there at least is that, right? Yeah. And, and they, they set up right from the get-go her personality conflict with Lydia. By the way, I have to point out at the start of episode three, Probes totally does the last week on Survivor. 
Lydia was going to go, and Brian totally saved her. Like, that's the storyline. Yeah, so, it doesn't it doesn't help that he immediately has this confession being like, got rid of Morgan, high-fiving Lydia. Like, I did it. This is great. But that that's, if not the first, that's one of the first times in Survivor where Probe starts steering the narrative and saying one person was responsible for everything, as opposed to just saying Lydia was spared. That's the stuff that really annoys me, so I always pick it out when Probst is assigning credit to make sure that you understand the story that he wants to tell, which is weird because it doesn't, Brian has no story. So I don't know why they even focus on that much, but it's just, it jumps out at me when I see it. So let's jump over to Nakum because we have some great wildlife scenes here. We also have some great uh, angry Judd scenes with these howler monkeys that are waking up Nakum in the middle of the morning. <laughs> yes. This is the, the beginning of Judd versus the Howler Monkeys storyline, which is, always makes me laugh. And we get, got- see, we get to see Cindy nerd out a little bit about zoology, <laughs> which is so randomly fantastic. <laughs> it would be even better if we could do a Cindy impression, wouldn't it? It's great uh, because like, she says some things that are like, you know, because she's like, well, you know, he's, he's, he's lost his group, you know, and, 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 and if the Howler Monkeys can get lost... Then, 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 you know, that, the, what, what chance do we have? And, you know, Judd's just like, she's got some freaking story. Like, he's lost his friends and he just <laughs> he can't get back. <laughs> Remember, Judd's in, always in a good mood and he gets along with everybody. He's like, I don't even know where she's coming up with this. I can't yeah, sleep because I- I've got this damn monkey up there that's driving me out of my damn mind. <laughs> it's the most annoyingest sound I've ever heard in my damn life, man. <laughs> and I love Cindy being like, like completely talking to the wrong audience, like, oh yeah, they just uh, they inflate and deflate the sack in their neck and it bulges like a like a bowling ball. And Judge, you can tell, is like nonplussed whatsoever. Oh my god, it's don't just like, care. He's like, I don't. Why are you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> he calls her Doctor Doolittle. <laughs> Uh, how can any? I, I hear so many people that say they hate Judd. Like, how can you not appreciate Judd as a character? Because he's just built for conflict, and he will say whatever pops into his mind. Yeah, there's uh, no, there's no filter there. Like, he's just, he's just gonna say what he's thinking. But it, it's, it's so, it's so true though. Like, it, it's fun to see Cindy nerd out about something, you know, dealing with animals and dealing with her field. I mean, you know, my degrees in history and whatnot, and whenever something you know, comes up, then I have to sort of tell a story. And the, and the thing is, is that I know when I'm telling the story that sometimes my audience is just like Judd where like they couldn't care less, but you just got to get the story out. And then probably, you know, they smile and nod. And when you go away, they're like, what was it? That freaking story, man, that, that, you know, professor Peabody had to, you know, get something and tell me this and, Oh, we're going to get in the time machine and go back. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. I know. But, you know, oof. howler monkeys emigrated here in 1420. <laughs> like, I don't care. I hope that monkey dies. <laughs> uh, so we, we jump to the reward challenge, which is sort of a take on the classic uh, collar retrieval challenge where I think everyone's uh, blindfolded and tied together in pairs or in groups of three. And they have to gather items to assemble an archaeological tent because remember, authentic Mayas. Uh, and basically the first tribe to assemble the tent wins the typical comfort blankets, lantern fuel, and tarp. And we got our, our callers are Gary and Brooke. So Brooke is of some relevance for the next like three minutes. <laughs> yes. Well, I do appreciate that Probst at least tries to tie this in with Guatemala. He's like, we have all these ruins here, these pyramids. Some of them are in various states of excavation. So today you will be building an archaeologist tent. So he at least makes the effort to tie it into the culture, which I always appreciate. It's good, and it, and it comes down to the end, and you know Gary does a real good job calling, and you know, it, it, great, great Danny moment in the, in this challenge where like, yeah, you know, they're they're taking these uh, poles for the for the tent, 
and uh, one of one of the the people that Danny's tethered to like picks up the pole and like hits her in the head a few times, and at some point you like you just see as they're walking out, she's like, "Tell me, I'm gonna a pole so I can duck." Yeah, and I think when she says that, he turns and says, "What?" and hits her again, <laughs> something like that. She's uh, like, "Ow!" Love- but what I, I love, love but what I love is, and stop me if you've heard this before, but Stephanie's tribe has a lead, and then they hastily try to put the put the tent together. And Stephanie's barking orders at them, and they freak out and lose. What? I'm, I'm just saying. Never heard this before. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying. You know, it's, it, it's what happened. See, and so yes. can, yeah, Nakum wins. I was gonna say Nakum wins, and then yeah, go ahead. Well, Nakum wins, and then Bobby John starts his. We didn't see too much of Bobby John celebrating in Palau because obviously they only won like three challenges, but we get to see a lot of Bobby John celebrating this season, and it is sublime bobby john is literally jumping up and down and all around the mayan ruins and screaming at the top of his lungs when they when they win he like he like gives brandon like the most ako taco hug as well Well, it's like a restrain it's almost like they have to restrain bobby john that's the kind of hug it is uh, yeah, it's, it's the funny dichotomy that Nakum wins, Bobby John jumps up and down and starts spazzing and doing Bobby John things, and immediately we cut to Stephanie doing Stephanie things, which is pouting and throwing down a rope in anger. Uh, I love it. And then, and then calling the challenge a clusterfuck later on. <laughs> she said cluster mess. That's true. She, she's she's got to inspire those kids. Exactly. She's not going to say politically incorrect things like gay or retarded. <laughs> <laughs> She'll censor herself on clusterfuck, so it's okay. Um, so as you talked about before, Mario, Amy is a really fantastic character. And I feel like, you know, she has a couple of moments in the first episode. But starting now is when we really get to see Amy come into her prime. And we get a fun scene here at the water uh, when she really foreshadows, you know, you're going to have to stick needles in my eyes if you want to take me out of this game. That's right. And we got crocodiles in the water. Yeah, it's, uh, she's, a, she's a great character. I'm trying to think of someone I would really compare her to in Survivor. And there's really nobody. She's... Just distinct, tough Boston cop with that really thick accent, and she's funny too. She'll she'll go on rants like Judd will. Like she'll just kind of go off, and it's really kind of funny because she's hilarious. Is yeah, it this she, is it this episode or next episode where they catch all the minnows? Uh, next episode, oh, okay. or maybe five. It's after this. Uh, okay. Yeah, but she's. I, I think the other thing that really discerns her from the rest of the cast is that she's also like loving her time out here, mm-hmm. which is in you know blatant blatant con- contrast to someone like. Stephanie or even someone like Judd or Jamie who tend to be more of a negative presence as the season moves on but she is she's never been camping in her life but she's loving every single minute of her time out here which is just like it's always refreshing to see those characters on Survivor and and also add to it that she's a, a lovable Boston cop and you have just a, a, an amazing person to, to look for especially when she says words like pack yeah, then there's no parking or cars or Harvard Yard in uh, in Guatemala. Near the water. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, it's, there's a great scene there where, you know, Amy, Lydia, and Stephanie are just all joking around and complaining about the conditions, and they're just bonding, like, you know, the, what people do on Survivor. And you cut over to Brianna sitting next to them, and she doesn't say a word. And it's just, I just love little scenes like that. You can see why Brianna gets voted out later. I mean, if she's useless in challenges, that's one thing, but she really doesn't take part in the conversations like the other people do. She just kind of sits there. And this is just a little subtle scene you'll see here of them all talking and Brianna off to the side, just basically staring down at the ground, not really participating. 
So did Rafe have any insight, do you know, as to like how close of a pair Brianna and Morgan were? Because if you said before, like the majority alliance at Yasha for a while was those three pairs, I wonder if losing Morgan really separated Brianna from the rest of that alliance. Yeah, I don't know that question. I could try to find out. I, I, I've never heard that. I'm assuming Brianna and Morgan must have been close just because I don't know who else Brianna would have been super close with. You can see she's not really close to a lot of people. But so I, I don't know for sure, but I, I'm guessing they probably had to be fairly close because they're the two weakest ones and they probably bonded over that. I mean, they had something in common like, well, I guess we don't fit in with the stronger ones around here. I also mm-hmm. want to know as well, because uh, this is just a food thing as, as well. Mike mentioned it earlier that they received, uh, you know, in that camp, they were given some pots and they were also given like a mortar and pestle because uh, usually on Survivor, the the main staple that they get in the background is rice. And sometimes they get beans, but it's just, it's something that they can throw in a pot and cook. And it's just sort of that, uh, stable little bit of food that they get in the background. But in, in survivor Guatemala, it seems that they were given corn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. well, remember in Amazon, they got the, the manioc. Yeah. They had the manioc. Well, yeah. In, so I, I think survivor really tried hard back then to make everything cultural, even with the cultural staples, as opposed to rice, they would pick what Guatemalans would have eaten. Right, I get that, and I love that. Here's the thing, though, is that corn, of course, is very notorious. Like, unlike rice, where you have the rice grain, and then you just you, you boil the water, and you put the rice in, and it cooks. Like, you can't just throw corn in a pot, and it cooks. Like, you have to sort of mash up the corn. That's why there's the mortar and pestle and stuff like that. You sort of have to then mash it up and then kind of soak it in the water and do some stuff. You have to make kind of the niche tamal that, you know, was, was there in the, in the Mayan thing. And I want to know, were they given a tutorial on that? There was, was there a how-to? Like, that's something that, that there's a couple extra steps with corn. And I'm wondering, did they get a lesson in that somewhere yeah. along the way? I'll try to find that out. I don't know. And again, a lot of people said, hey, why don't you just get Rafe on the show as like an interview? That would be great. Unfortunately, I looked into that. Rafe, you know, writes for a TV show and he says he has contracts that forbid him from giving interviews, formal interviews right now. So he would love to be on the show. He can't. So I can't really talk to him. So that's the thing. I, I, I don't know if I can find out that answer. Yeah. So, something that, that just kind of crosses my mind because they do mention and Rafe has, has a confessional. I don't know if it's this episode or the next one or, or something like that where he's just trying to talk about variety of food because they have that corn mush. And I'm like, that's cool that they're using the corn mush, but there's extra steps to that. That's not something like rice where you just have a bag of rice, you throw the rice in the water, you know, fire and forget. Like you actually have to like prep the corn. Hmm. I don't know. Well, Brianna says she's she's a major asset because she's prepping the corn, but if she's not doing yeah, it correctly, I, I guess it's okay that they got rid of her. Well, it's, so, not like, it's not like super hard. It's just an extra step, right? But, you know, whatever. So uh, we go over to Nakum, and as we talked about before, the, the river, the lake is populated with alligators or crocodiles or some sort of uh, dangerous amphibian. And, uh, but Nakum has had enough, and a few people, specifically, I think it's Brandon, Judd, Bobby John, and Danny, decide to just paddle out and just jump into the middle of the crocodile-infested waters to just hang out. And Cindy is uh, Cindy's just shaking her head. Yeah, you know, leave it, leave it to the person who knows the most about animals to be like, yeah, well, y- you probably shouldn't. And, you know, they're like, well, we can see the crocodiles. So, you know, we're, we're here and they're not there. And she's like, you know, they, they hide in the water. That's, that's what they do is that they hide and, and then they come out and bite you. So I don't really understand why you would do that. So she's kind of, you know, she knows a lot about alligators and stuff. And so she's like, well, I, they could be out there. But, you know, as Bobby John said, well, sir. Sometimes you just have to be in the water. To be fair, I'm sure she told this to Judd, and Judd was just not receptive to it. 
Judd, Judd Sargent's Safari Planet. <laughs> what, are you freaking talking to the alligators out there, man? Do you know when they're going to damn attack me and damn bite me, you know, bite me in the damn neck, man? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, we have a nice little, again, another fun quote from Brandon about, you know, I, I've never felt more alive in my entire life with a nice little, nice little smirk on his face. So, uh, as we talked about before, we, we get uh, a confessional from Brianna about how she, she's worried, she's sensing a little bit that she's not considered an asset on the tribe. So, she tries to prep the corn mush as much as she can, but Rafe is still on the hunt for food and so he's moved on from the ants and the grasshoppers and now he's going to just plain termites he's getting more and more granular with these insects it seems <laughs> Ew, stop it i'm not going to be your friend anymore rafe oh my yo oh no he's she's <laughs> been threatened with the ultimate ultimate threat to not be stephanie's friend i love that she uses that threat twice she uses it on gary later when he tries to eat the termites i'm not going to be your friend gary because yeah, because you know there's apparently some protein in those termites Again, Rafe is a nature guy. He kind of knows this stuff out there. No, not nobody would know as much about being out in the wilderness as Stephanie. <laughs> yeah, I, I got nothing. It's we're good. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's pop over to Nakum because now we have, as we talked about before, Margaret kind of disappears for episode two, but then we start getting a little bit of the storyline of Margaret is annoying the hell out of the rest of her tribe where uh, they're, I think the guys are wanting to, they want to put up a canopy and Margaret's instructing them about like, no, if you want to do it this way, you have to put it up like this and the guys just kind of say, fuck it and they just put it up like a big circus tent. <laughs> Which, on the one hand, you know, yeah, Margaret's not winning any favors by, you know, trying to you know assert herself into something that you know was started by somebody else but it's really funny that like bobby johnson's like i'm a grown man well so you cannot tell a grown man what to do it's like first of all sexist second of all like she was telling you to lie back and all these sorts of things in the few days when you were like practically dead and and you weren't really complaining then so now that you're feeling a little better you're like well so she cannot tell me what to do it's like yeah she probably could dude honestly she could (laughs) and she has yes (laughs) Uh, it's Bob, Bobby John's gotten over his Stockholm syndrome at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the start of the Margaret is annoying. Margaret's no longer our hero now. She's playing a damn mother hen role, man. <laughs> and Sydney told me about those hens. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Tree Mail comes and it has all this body paint. And Danny is stoked because if there's one thing we know about Danny at this point is uh, sports. And Danny just again compares it to going to a cheap football game, and that's that's all again all we hear from Danny this episode. Yes, and we get yeah, some, they get uh, the feather, they get the feathers, they get the face paint, they get those like uh, straps and bands they can wrap around themselves. And Brian uh, channels a little bit of Bobby John in his in his team huddle here, where he's uh, <laughs> he's just spitting out a bunch of stuff about how they're underdogs and how you know they need to they need to get a win, and he just he's trying to pump them up, but considering that they're. They've, their leader is like sullen Stephanie. They're they are not pumped up anytime soon. It's funny that that speech Probst refers to it later as Brian gave them a pep talk that her pecked them up before the big challenge. But if you watch the challenge, Brian's annoying people because Jamie tries to put his mouth over his hand over Brian's mouth. <laughs> Just one of those little moments I always laugh that Brian gives the big pep talk and Jamie reaches out and it's like, all right, shut up, dude. Yeah, that's he's he's a motivator he's uh he's on the same level as alexis from survivor fans versus favorites in terms of being a motivational speaker <laughs> he's that guy it's tough because the- it's tough because he's trying right like you can see with him with the strategy right like he's trying he's a smart guy he's out there he's 
you know, he, he's trying to affect himself in this game, and, and that's cool. I, I, I applaud the effort, right? But it's like, he's strategically not holding sway right now. You know, Gary's sort of calling the shots. And so then he's going to try to, like, you know, lead the sports pep talk. But it's like, Brian, there are people out there that actually play sports. Like, you can no, try, that, but... That landscaper in the corner, <laughs> he's looking pretty suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, no, it's uh, he bleeds the Yasha blue. That's the best you can say about him. He bleeds the Yasha blue, and he's platinum, and he's platinum. Uh, so let's get to the immunity challenges. The oldest Maya game, court ball, which is sort of a little bit like a uh, slam ball. Was that what it was called when it was like <laughs> basketball on a trampoline? Oh my god, do not diss slam ball. Slam ball was the best. You know, ironically, court ball is the oldest uh, Mayan game, and also the newest Mayan game. It's the only Mayan game I know of. That's true. I don't know how many other games they played. Also, when you learn about actual Mayan court ball, like what they played on Survivor is nothing close <laughs> to what that is. So, like, I love it when, like, in the middle of challenges, we've already hinted, like, just like that's how they do it, like the Maya. And I'm like, no, not at all. <laughs> nay, nay. In fact, just the opposite. Oh no, I'm sure the Maya, you know, strung up the the big cargo net and got all those camera people to to film them. <laughs> Yeah, this is like the Wii version of court ball. <laughs> uh, it's not even, I mean, okay, I'm not going to give the history lesson because it's a story, but suffice it to say the court ball that the Maya plate, hands were never used, couldn't be used. So like all of the bull crap that they were doing in there, like, first of all, wrong right off the bat. But anyway. Could they use picks? Yeah. Well, you know, if they knew how to set a pick. Okay, could people travel? That, that's uh, not what the game was. Did, did they alternate uh, between male and female? Did the Mayans oh do that? Oh my god! <laughs> All right, first point scored. Uh, two females in. Uh, Og and Mahala go in. <laughs> Mahala, wow! Was, uh, horribly offensive towards. I apologize for any people of Maya descent listening to this. <laughs> Man, out of our twelve listeners, at least three of them were Mayans. You just fucked us, Bloom. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so I mean, for you those don't need to worry that, about it. They mysteriously disappeared. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so uh, for those of you that might not remember what court ball is, basically they're on a giant cargo net. They have to throw a ball through any any number of hoops to score a point. And the only rule is that as as soon as you pick it up, you have to throw it. It's sort of like an ultimate frisbee thing. You cannot run with the ball. Uh, so I guess uh, we can hi- give a few highlights here because it goes for a while. I think it's like first two. What three five 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 like, like they just they, they do a lot yeah it's like a lot of points and the and the only really resemblance to anything you know Maya court ball is just the fact that the hoop is the sideways hoop and that mm-hmm. that's really it like other than that and then it's just you know American you know hokum going around with with the the ball and the net and everything and the rules the ultimate frisbee rule of once you have the ball you can't move. So the Mayans yeah. didn't use a Rawlings basketball dressed up with black threads around it? <laughs> they sure didn't, Billy. <laughs> so the, the big highlights here come from the, the, the all-star team of Steph, Lydia, and Brianna. <laughs> both times they're on. Because the first time, but in both situations, Steph has the ball. And obviously Danny's going after her because Danny's by far the tallest. And she's the gangliest, as Mario brought up before. So she's obviously the best blocker. And Steph has nobody to pass it to because... Lydia's just running around, and Brianna is standing on the other side of the court both times, just not moving. Yeah. Uh, so the first time, Lydia picks up the ball and just just runs with it, and Jeff <laughs> Jeff just stops her right there. And uh, and I 
he doesn't. I think he, does he get no. He he just gives it to Nakum. He doesn't give Nakum the point. This is an attack an attack zone thing. Yeah, but if it Lydia, was modern probes, he would have chewed Lydia out for the next two minutes about how useless she is. Yeah, Lydia got beat by a bunch of rules in this case. Uh, <laughs> and and then in the second one, this is the infamous pick setup where before they get onto the net, Steph is just trying to inspire her team members by <laughs> by pl- planning to to set up some sort of pick. But neither Lydia or Brianna know what a pick is. All right, there's a lot of confusion over this. There's a lot of people that have written in and saying, oh, Stephanie didn't, didn't even know what a pick was. A pick wouldn't work in that situation. I will defend Stephanie's honor here that she was absolutely right. A pick in this situation is she's telling Lydia or Brianna, go over and screen the other person's defender, block them. Like, Lydia, run around, block Cindy, and then, then Brianna can run past Cindy and get open. For the, she's telling them to do something to block the other person's defender so they can get open. That's, so Stephanie is absolutely correct. Her terminology might not be the best, and she's not good at explaining it, but in theory, what she is saying should work, and that's how you play that sport, and that's why she's so frustrated, because no one's doing anything to help her. Yeah, the, the way to win in that one, you saw, I think that Yashad did it once or so, and, and you saw it, it executed, and, and how it is is that you have somebody surround the ball, and then you create a little bit of confusion, and you do one outlet pass to your one teammate, and you have your other teammates sprint toward one of the hoops, and then you, when you get the outlet pass to the to your other teammate, they then throw the long pass down to your semi-open teammate, who just then grabs the ball and then throws it in the hoop. So like Stephanie's just trying to set up a play, is yeah. what she's trying to do. She's trying to just create the separation so that you can get like the one pass to the one pass. And it's like, if first of all they they weren't with it, and second of all, Brianna's not moving. Like she went out there and she's just standing there and. You know, they highlight it, obviously, because, you know, this is Brianna's going to go this episode. So we're showing reasons why uh, we won't go. But it's like that's how you win in that sport at that sport when you can't move the ball is you have to create confusion. And then through the confusion, you get a, a pass open and then you just try to get somebody open near the hoop to get to get the ball. So I will defend Stephanie as well. She tried. She I mean, but this is this is the thing with Stephanie. This is why Stephanie is not a good teammate. A, it's about her. But B, she can't. Like, okay, I, I teach. I, I understand that fact, but it's like you have to like get your point across. And she doesn't she's just like, Do you know a pick? It's like, first of all, that's not the best terminology. And then when they were like, No, she didn't like try to, you know, work with them on this. <laughs> yeah. She just was like, You don't know a pick, fine. You know, and then and then and then, you know, the round sort of starts then. It's like tell them what you would like them to do. Like, <laughs> Don't just scream pick in an ever-increasing volume. That's like trying to teach a dog to pick something. Pick! <sighs> Could you imagine Stephanie in like a stand-and-deliver situation where she's like, <laughs> all right, you have to teach algebra to these yeah. inner-city kids. <laughs> algebra! Algebra! <laughs> all right, I'm done. <laughs> yes. You guys don't have as much heart as I do. <laughs> Dwight, you're so retarded, inner-city kids. <laughs> Uh, She'd so, find some way to say retarded in Spanish so she could get her point across. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, another highlight, or not, I guess a low light of this challenge, is that it, the first round where Amy goes, I think it's like the second round, she trips almost immediately, and we'll see later. This is the first of, of Amy's two ankle rollings. And, uh, she, but to show what an amazing trooper she is, she just gets right up and keeps going she doesn't really become a hindrance in this challenge i don't think she competes in any or she competes in one more round this challenge but like she's not dragging the team behind i would say brianna and lydia are probably more weak links for the tribe in this challenge than one ankle amy is no amy actually helps out later in later rounds like amy's a trooper man 
yeah, it's, you know, Amy's kind of negated as a player starting right about here. She's never really a major character again, and we never really saw her at her full potential. But yeah, it's unfortunate she goes down. But yeah, the person that really jumps out to me in this challenge is, well, two, Stephanie is hilarious just because of how violent she is. Like when you see her in a contact sport with other girls, she's just vicious and brutal. And she absolutely looks like the, the lacrosse player that she really is, like because that's mm-hmm. what lacrosse is. But the other one is Danny. Danny's yeah. so tall and so like knowledgeable about sports. She knows exactly how this game is played, and she's unstoppable because she's so tall. So she is absolutely the MVP in this challenge. Yeah, it's weird. It seems like everyone, again, everyone has these challenges that are oddly suited to their individual uh, assets. And it seems yeah. like Danny has found hers as well. And I also like this challenge because of Gary's makeup, where he looks like a sad clown. <laughs> like a Pagliacci situation. <laughs> he is. It's his tribute to Pagliacci. <laughs> it's it's uh, very subtle. You have, to know, you have to know Gary and his history with the, the uh, theater and the clown arts. But he, it's, it's a subtle, it's a throw, it's a shout out. That's what I did 15 years ago. I was an uh, opera singer. <laughs> he, was reading, he was reading The Watchmen? <laughs> now, okay, I got to say one thing about this challenge. that you know, Brianna is obviously worthless. One of the most worthless challenge performers I've ever seen on Survivor. <clears throat> but then remind, remind yourself that it's 114 degrees out and they're playing basketball, which is a brutal sport if you're not in cardio condition to start with. And then I have to point out that Brianna is from my area of the country. She's from the Pacific Northwest. She's um, from right outside uh, south of Seattle. In fact, if if people are familiar with the area, she was a uh, perfume salesman at South Center Mall right by the airport. So people from my area of the world cannot handle heat over about 80 degrees. Like if it's 90 degrees, I don't go outside in California because it will will fry me. I'm I'm like a polar bear. Northwesterners cannot handle heat. So a Northwest girl trying to play basketball, which she's never played in 114 degree heat on no water. I mean, there's a reason she had no energy. I totally can appreciate her. She should be doing something to move to at least appear like she's helpful, but I can totally see why she had no business being out there in that challenge. She was dying out there. Yeah, those were extreme circumstances. And I think, again, some people have said that that's probably one of the toughest survivor challenges ever, just because, as you said, Mario, they're doing this extremely physical activity in 114 degree heat. Yeah. I, again, I'm, I'm still su- completely surprised that nobody once again passed out in the middle or after this challenge. Yeah. And again, it's, you're running on an uneven surface, which is ridiculously hard to do if you've never done that before. And that's what got me when I was on that ropes course in Mexico, that we were walking on an uneven bridge where you're bouncing up and down. Just that movement alone is so much more exerting than you think it's going to be, especially when they're running up and down on this net. That's, that was a tough challenge. So Nakum wins. They continue their streak. And this is just sending Stephanie deeper and deeper into her spiral. For these first few episodes, we get a lot of like Steph saying, why me? Am I cursed on the tribe again? She actually brings up a really interesting parallel that once again, she's on both A, another tribe that loses all the time, and B, on a tribe where someone breaks their ankle, which is like a weirdly odd parallel. <laughs> yeah. But again, I, I, I feel like I'll be defending Stephanie a lot in this podcast where, yeah, it sucks. She's got a negative attitude. You know, she woe is me. But, you know, everyone else here has lost three challenges. It's like, okay, that sucks. Stephanie has now lost, what, 15 challenges? Yeah, so there's a, like, there's, there's a reason her level of frustration is a little higher than everyone else, and that's the thing. It's, it's like Stephanie's kind of broken by this point. It's, it's driven her mad that she loses so much. So where she's not really fun to be around, and I totally think it's funny to l- just listen to her whine about her own storyline, Like you have to think of how much losing has been beaten into her head the past year and a half. It's just got to be – everyone compounds it that much more. 
Yeah, and I like I like how she kind of rambles on about how Brianna had her head literally up her butt the entire <laughs> challenge, and Stephanie had to pull it out. That was a great quote. I love that quote. <laughs> Completely up her butt, I had to pull it out. And then she bags on Lydia, the useless fishmonger. So the ultimate team player here, Stephanie, just bagging on all of her teammates. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the other main focus of this scene for a little bit is Amy's ankle, which is understandably extremely swollen after the, the tumble she takes. But, I mean, she shows herself to be a trooper. She says, you know, my, my ankle will be flo- falling off. My ankle will be falling off if I had to quit. Uh, so we're, I don't think we're going to see Amy go anytime soon unless she's, like, mercy killed and given the, uh, the Jeff Wilson treatment. Yes. So right before the vote here, this is... Uh... One of the harsher quotes on in Survivor history, I forgot how brutal this was until I heard it, where Jamie taking digs at Brianna before she's voted out. Yeah, and Jamie uh, says, I like my girls crazy and pretty. She's neither. That's uh, pretty Jamie. harsh. That's a there's pretty a, brutal quote. There's an interesting dynamic that I'm wondering was not shown too much on the show. I feel like I heard somewhere that Jamie and Lydia had a close relationship. Did, did Rafe talk about that at all? Because I can kind of see it in scenes where like Jamie and Lydia are talking to each other. You mentioned how they were in that minority alliance mm-hmm. on Yasha to begin with. It seems like they'd be two unlikely people to get along, but I, I remember hearing somewhere that they had a close relationship. Yeah, I heard that Yasha in general, they were all pretty close, but Lydia in particular was close to just about everybody except Brianna. Like They all kind of rallied around Lydia. She was like their heart of their tribe. And this is something that Rafe told me that, you know, when, when the episode started airing on TV, he was shocked that Lydia wasn't presented as a bigger character. Because when he was playing the game, he was like, that was kind of the talk around everybody on the tribe that this was going to be Lydia's season. She's the big sweetheart. She's the star. Like, Rafe, he said, you know, when I'm out there, he knew Survivor again. He, this guy knows the show. He's like, this girl, this lady Lydia is going to be as big a character as Colleen was in Borneo. That was his assumption or his assertion when he was out there. In fact, that he had to vote Lydia off at the end. He thought he was going to be hated for that because he thought she would be such a huge character. So, yeah, she was very popular and she had good relationships with everybody. And I wouldn't doubt that she and Jamie were pretty close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just weird because, like, I don't know. It seems like we, we, we don't see too much of, like, Brian saving Lydia this episode as he claimed to do last episode. It, it seems more like a Jamie thing. It seems like Jamie's more so leading the charge to get rid of Brianna. At least that's what the editing shows us. Maybe it's because Jamie delivers better sound bites, as mentioned before, about how Brianna kind of sucks. But it's weird. It seems like for not really appearing too much in the previous two episodes, Jamie kind of steps into the forefront here to lead the charge against Brianna. <laughs> Jamie, again, we'll talk more about this in part two, but he's I think he's the most interesting player in this season, and I've always thought that, that his arc goes from complete asshole to really nice guy to complete asshole to really nice guy. It goes all over the place. And you can see that right here. Yeah, he's just digging on Brianna, which is one of the worst quotes I've ever heard. But yeah, he is kind of sweet at the same time to some of these people. So you'll see him go back and forth the whole season. So uh, we, you know, we we had this little sit down of Brianna trying to save herself where she's... uh, you know, I, I think she's like sitting down with Steph. And she's like, I, lo- you know, I love this game, and you know, I, I don't trust Lydia for a second. But it, it ultimately falls on deaf ears as once again it's unanimous. Brianna's gone. Yeah. it's it's tough. It's tough too because you know we got confessionals from Brianna earlier in this episode where she's just like, I don't get along with Lydia, and there's that awkward moment where like they're both sitting there and and uh, you know 
could rain later. Oh, yeah, I think so. And you can just see that they don't really have any chemistry with each other. But it's like, as you said, Mario, everyone kind of likes Lydia and everyone's very tight with Lydia. So when you go and you go, you know, Lydia sucks. It's like probably the wrong person to pick on. Yes. So uh, there, so there here goes a uh, for, forgettable young woman number two. Though again, as, as you said, Mario, she just she had a glimmer of personality. I would say in this episode, and she does urge her her tribe to kick some Nakum butt. But uh, Brianna, we we slightly hardly knew ye as we move <laughs> into episode four. Now, is uh, this is this tribal council? Is this the one where Jeff points out Steph's winning statistics? No, that is Next episode. F- episode. This is that's this episode. Yeah. Oh, okay. When they, after after the switch, when he says he's like she's like four for twenty one or something. Oh my God, Stephanie! I can't <laughs> wait for that. But again, that's the thing that we why I say Stephanie's just kind of snapped and is broken by this point. Imagine having that over your head, and when you're like a division, what is she? She's like an elite college athlete. She's not used to being four and twenty one. Yeah. Yeah. So Nakum, uh, it seems like. You know, this is this was back when the elements were still kind of a big focal point on Survivor in terms of editing, and, and it seems like we get segments on it every episode in, in Guatemala this far. And it, we start off with it here, where Nakum is both complaining about the heat and more so, it seems, the mosquitoes. And I feel like for the first time since Marquesas, we really get the, the gross bug bite close-ups on people's legs over at Nakum. Yep, and as Judd points out, swatting them only works for about a millimeter of a second. And uh, it seems like he's an early SNL fan because he compares them to the Killer Bees. He does, yeah. He's a big fan of the classic SNL days of the 70s. <laughs> you ever seen the Killer Bees, man? Yeah, 15 years ago, Gary was not playing in the NFL and Judd was studying SNL history. <laughs> I'm surprised he'll get his cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger in a couple of episodes, though, so he'll be good. I wonder about that camp. Like, that was the reward for the 11-mile hike was to live in those Mayan ruins. And, I mean, as cool as it would be to live in the Mayan ruins and the fact that they had, you know, natural seating with the ruins there and stuff like that, like, it just seemed like that Nakum camp was uh, – it just didn't seem like the greatest camp ever. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask that. Do, was the mosquitoes the – were they the, the the problem over only at Nakum? It doesn't seem like Yasha – had that big of a problem with the mosquitoes or maybe they didn't show it but like nakum and we'll see this for the next few episodes it's like all about the bugs there yeah well the rafe was saying just the conditions were horrible everywhere so i don't think that was specific to nakum i don't think it was specific but you could see on yasha like i'm not saying it was more shaded i mean look it it, it seemed like it was miserable everywhere and and uh, you know all that sort of stuff but like at yasha they they seemed like they were handling the heat better and maybe that was the people that were there but but, you know, the, you saw these people in Nakum, like they're in these Mayan ruins, and it just seems like they were just sitting there baking in the sun. Whereas, like, you see over in Yasha, they're, like, moving around in the trees. They're, you know, you see a lot of shots of them by the water, like, you know, trying to catch fish and stuff like that. Like, they just seemed slightly cooler than than over in Nakum. And I'm just sitting there going, like, was that really the more advantageous camp? Yeah, it's... uh. It's odd how things work out, and I mean, I'm, I'm glad they got the canopy and everything, but like, uh, yes, again, aside from the giant mine pyramid and the cool scenic effects from that, there really wasn't any discernible difference between the two camps. Yeah. Although I will say, just from a, from a visual point of view, I really like the scenes in this season where someone's sitting on a pyramid looking down at people and talking about them. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. kind of the, over, the overlord effect that you can have just, by, just from a visual perspective. I like that. And we'll, we'll see that later this episode when it's kind of what will be set up as the power triumvirate of Judd, Jamie, and Stephanie sitting up on the pyramid mm-hmm. looking down mm-hmm. on everyone else talking. It's a really cool image. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's not uh, get too far ahead. So we had this really 
fun uh, survivor trick that they sometimes do where Brandon gives this whole confessional about how like, oh man, if we're miserable, I can imagine Yasha's even worse. And then cut to Gary like catching these whole bunch of minnows in this giant pot and everyone's celebrating. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really fun cut too. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is when they find the croc, which is uh, they, they give you know a little bit of a fish story later on of saying it's like five feet from their dock. I think it's a little farther out there, but it's still like still pretty scary and i mean yeah. they they didn't go that out there and swim with the crocodiles like nakum did so this is really their first encounter with the wildlife and they don't have cindy there to educate them about the the mating <laughs> patterns of the crocodiles yeah i mean again it just reminds me of africa with the lions like this is real they're right out there next to those crocodiles and admittedly the danger probably isn't that great because crocodiles probably aren't that brave they're going to come swim up to a human being from that far away but still i mean you're right out there in nature so it's got to be kind of a it makes them think when they're at the water every time. So let's uh, let's dive into this reward challenge because this is this is a weird one. <laughs> uh, this is a very weird challenge. First of all, it functions almost as kind of an individual challenge. It's not even like tribe. a challenge; it's just a thing. Yeah, Brian <laughs> Brian puts challenge in quotes even because it they it's. It's, it harkens back a little bit to these like superlative questions that they did in, Af- in uh, Amazon All Stars of like who who needs this, who is the most this. Uh, but it's within your tribes, so you're voting for your own tribe member, and it's still tribal, so one person from each tribe wins. And as we'll see, some of the rewards have repercussions on the game, which is like a, a weird concept, considering that while rewards definitely have an effect on camp life, they're pretty separate from the central conceit of the game. So this is a this is a strange one to say the least. Yeah, this is just I know you hate ta- me talking about my stories, but this is the type of challenge I never would have put in a story because it's too confusing. It's it's tough to read this challenge even through my notes who ends up with which tribe and how it all happens. It's it's not it doesn't happen very quickly and organically like most twists. It's a little little complex for its own good and it's funny because I was watching the early show uh, segment of uh, after Brooke gets cooked out cooked uh, kicked out here that the early show Anchor says the exact same thing. She's like, it was kind of confusing following who got up, put on what tribe and everything. And she goes, I had to watch it a couple times to see exactly who ended up with who and what bonds got broken. So it's, it's just kind of a confusing episode here in terms of storyline. It is. It, it, you can see what they were doing. What, what they did was they had a couple dummy things at the beginning. They first asked who needed nourishment and uh, Danny and what Jamie or whatever win. Yeah. They get, they get a, a, a Granny Smith apple apiece. Which is great. And then the next one is who's the smelliest and it's like Gary and Bobby John and they get to use a shower and that's all fine and dandy. And then the the next couple are the central conceit of what's going on. Basically, they're doing a tribe shuffle. We didn't obviously know this right away. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to shuffle some of the members of the tribe and some some other members of the tribe. So they have these convoluted ways to sort of get some of the people sw- to switch and not. And this is what Mario is talking about is, is needlessly confusing because the first part is they ask who deserves, who, who needs some nourishment or who needs to have a picnic? I think it's even the question. Like, no, they, 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 even, no, they, they don't even put any sort of mystery behind yeah, the yeah, question. He, yeah. They literally say like, which man and which woman most deserves a picnic afternoon yeah. <laughs> atop a Maya pyramid and will be returning to camp later that afternoon. Yeah, that, that's literally the question, right? It's just, it's that. And then, so they choose, uh, what Gary and, uh, Amy, Gary and Amy, Amy and then Margaret and, uh, um, and Judd, <laughs> Judd wins. And he's like, damn man, thank you so much, man. I just, 
I love you guys, man. You you picked me for this thing, man. So they they come up and you know again a cool Amy moment where she's like, "Is there a friggin' tarantula in there, Jeff?" I love that because the fact that like Jeff outlined every component of what would happen in that question, and Amy still thinks she's going to get tricked somehow. <laughs> and Jeff's like, "I wouldn't do that to you." And he he pulls out like some chicken and uh, some potato salad and the thing of iced tea, and he's like, "You can't bring any back. Go to the pyramid." Enjoy yourself. So the conceit number one, they get two members from the original tribe from each or each tribe, Yasha and Nakum, and they get them out of there and they're going to return to their camp later. So they're staying. So then the next question is who bleeds Yasha blue? Who has the most tribe pride? Who bleeds Yasha blue and who is Nakum yellow? Yep. And this is a uh, Brian and Cindy. Yes. Brian and Cindy win. So then he's like, all right, so Brian, you're going to stay Yasha and Cindy, you're going to stay Nakum. Everyone else. We're switching tribes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Steph, you have an opportunity to lose on another tribe. I'm not going to be your friend, Jeff. <laughs> well, to be fair, Stephanie never experienced this on Survivor. So by Stephanie's standards, this has never happened in the history of the world before. <laughs> yes. But oh, it's hey. funny. I was because I Guatemala never really registered with me as a great season the first time I watched it. And it's not something I hate. I don't think it's horrible. I don't think it's boring like Cook Islands. It just never registered with me at the time. And over the years, I've always tried to figure out what it is because it's got a good cast. There's a lot of good stuff going on. It's got a great location. But it's this episode that always does it for me because I have no freaking clue what the relationships are on either either side after this twist. It just it's hard for me to relate to this whole thing. And I don't know. Maybe you can put into words better than I can what's going on here. But this episode always throws me off here to the point that I'm kind of disoriented for the next three, four episodes. What the heck's really going on? The, the, the thing about these post-switch dynamics, and it'll get more complicated on New Yasha than New Nakum, but essentially it comes down to tribal lines, which like is not... I think the problem is that it doesn't really focus on the relationships. It more so focuses on like, all right, it's three, it's four, three Nakum versus three Yashad. One, they have to sway one person over. And like, yeah, that's the only storyline. And I think that's, it's tough because as you said, Mario, you do want to focus more so on like, well, these two people like Margaret and Judd, they could focus a lot more. They, they do of like Margaret and Judd don't get along. So that's why Judd switches over. But like, it's more so about like, well, they're outnumbered because, it was they just got unlucky and that's how it's going to carry for the next couple weeks again Yasha gets a little more complicated when they get rid of blake that kind of throws a wrench to the plans but that's that's kind of how these post switch storylines run that's the key they they, they don't really talk about what relationships there were before that are broken by this you have no idea how this affects the game right because when you switch up a tribe like that one of two things is going to happen one tribes are going to you know, they may do temporary things, you know, in the moment for now, but once merge happens and stuff like that, they are going to default to their original tribal lines or they're not going to and they're going to forge new bonds uh, ahead. And both both strategies are equally valid. Both things are things that people can do. But I think that what happens is, is like, you know, and I, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but in this game in Guatemala, like even though they talk about their old tribal lines, Yasha and Nakum, they're going to break those and they're going to form new alliances from these new tribes and even heading into the merge. So what basically we're saying is all that stuff in the first three episodes doesn't really matter. Yeah. And I think, I think that what you're trying to put your head on is you're like, you have this confusing tribe switch because 
you know, Gary and Amy and, you know, Judd and Margaret aren't even there, right? They have to come back and, you know, it's a fun reveal that they walk into their camp, but it's like, they're not even there. And one person on the map got to stay on their tribe and then everyone else had to move. But then the one tribe had more people than the other tribe. So they still had to draw buffs. And it was this confusing sort of merry-go-round and then they get to their tribes and then they form new bonds. And you're like, well, what was, what happened? Okay, I saw three episodes of this show and none of that... Okay, so we just got rid of people that were below the Ashby line, and then after that, it's just whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the only thing I can compare it to. I mean, I'm just going to bring up All Stars, and I hate the fact that I have to fucking talk about All Stars. But, like, we know with Boston Rob and Amber get split onto separate tribes, there's all these confessionals with Boston Rob. You know, they got my girl over there. I'm very sad. Like, you understand the ramifications of the twist. There's none of that in this whatsoever. Like, it's yeah. okay, now it's four to three, and it's four to four. It's, and I have to say, it's kind of, for me, it's kind of like watching in the more modern seasons where they split the vote, where everyone just talks about, okay, we'll do this, you do that, we do this, do that, where it's just, you're just talking about each player like they're a number. And that's the thing that, that jumps out at me when I watch the scene. Like, I just glaze over anytime they talk about four versus four or four versus three because cause I don't care. Like, I want to understand why this is a big deal that people got split apart, how this could affect the game, and there's really no explanation whatsoever and so that's why i always say this is a twist i would never have used in one of my stories because it just serves nothing other than to mix names around that's it doesn't really change the story at all Mm -hmm. and so the final component to this switch is that since for some reason they decided to do this with uneven numbers uh there is one extra nakum member so to keep the numbers of eight versus seven one extra Naku member is staying with Cindy. So it turns out it's, it's the luck of the draw. Jeff has cups with buffs under them. And Brooke, I guess, ends up picking the yellow buff, which ends up sealing her fate in the future of this episode. Uh, but she's the one sticking on the tribe with Cindy. And uh, they, they kind of... And the, I think another another slight problem with this switch is that it's a little disjointed. It's not Jeff saying, okay, both new tribes get back to camp because there's also four other people on a Mayan ruin eating a picnic, completely unaware of what's going on. He's like, okay, uh, the rest of you go back to your camp. So it's it's a little bit of a disjointed situation for these next few minutes. Yep. And thank God Brooke was spared, said no one ever. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's, there's that. And, and I think the thing is that it's very tensionless. And that's uh, a, a complaint about modern season. Like, I think people look at the strategy involved when, when people are talking. And, you know, if you like the strategy and the numbers, you know, there, there's lots of good stuff going there. But if you care about the people and the relationships that they've built, then, you know, a lot of that splitting votes and this, that, it's, it's, there's, there's, no, there's no ramifications there. And I think for the fact that, you know, we didn't get a lot of, you know, the, Guatemala to this point has not showed us a lot of these uh, tribal alliances so far on, on Yasha and Nakum. And I think the reason why they haven't is because once this tribe switch happens in episode four, this is where sort of the game kind of starts in a lot of ways, the, the strategic part, because this is where a lot of these alliances that are going to last into the merge and post-merge sort of start to form. So they were basically like, screw it, we're not going to show alliance stuff really the first three episodes because the switch is going to happen and that's where things start and then we're going to go. And that's all well and good, but this tribal switch is less, there's no tension in it, there's no ramifications to it. It's just something that happens and it's very messy and we, the viewers, are left to pick up the pieces and just move on from there, which is fine and dandy and we got some really nice character scenes in the first three episodes, but... You know, if you're looking at the strategical impact of the first three episodes, the answer is there is none. Just three people went home. The game's going to start now. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, we, we cut to the picnic and everyone's, you know, they're completely unaware of what happened. They thought they're just going on a, a friendly picnic and they're, they're toasting and uh, we get our requisite everyone suspects Gary is a quarterback scene for this episode where Margaret plays her little game where she asks like, okay, Amy, are you a police officer? We thought you were a police officer. And, you know, she asked Gary if she was a quarterback. Thank God she didn't ask him what he did 15 years ago or he'd be <laughs> cornered. But no, he's able to, to blatantly deny it once again. Yeah. Oh, I'm a landscaper. She's like, oh, you're not a quarterback. What were you doing 15 years ago? Damn it. No. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, he I mean, Gary has not shown himself to be the best at lying aside from just blatantly denying every single thing that is said about him. But he can he can lie pretty badly in front of Judd and still get away, considering that Judd will show himself to be an absolutely horrible liar later on in this game. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, thank God the season's funny. There's so many funny things coming up here that it's going to make up for the fact that these next episodes are kind of dead inside. But there's a, there's a great quote from Amy here about, you know, like, oh, Gary, watch, watch, he, watch he's a multimillionaire. I'll friggin' kill him. I'll friggin' kill him. <laughs> this is, she's not going to beat him down yet, but we're getting there. But yeah. it's things like that that have a really good payoff because I'm jumping way, way ahead. But, you know, she has a confessional later in the season with this with Gary, like, you better not be a quarterback, you know, and stuff like that. And then the, the fact that, you know, we totally know he is and he's denying it to the end. And then the fact that, like, they bring it up at the reunion, like, it's stuff like that is awesome. <laughs> like, there's that, that is awesome stuff in Survivor. Like, I fully support all that. I don't think I did it justice on the Funny 115 either. I should have had way more Gary Hawkins and Hogaboom stuff. Just uh, one of those things. Like it's it's so much fun every time you watch it. It's just it dominates this first half of this this whole season. So the first camp we go back to is New Year's Shaw, and uh, there's a luckily there's a big basket of fruit at each camp, it's probably as a way to say like don't die on us, even though you've only been here like ten days and you're all ready to die. Uh, Brian kind of laments the situation a bit as we talked about before. It's four Nakum versus three former Year Shaw. But uh, what makes it is Amy and Gary walking back into the camp, and the first thing Amy says is, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're decimated here. Decimated. <laughs> By the way, i got to point out, when Gary and uh, Amy come back, the first thing that they hear is, see is Bobby John, and Bobby John says, here's Johnny. So who would have thought Bobby John would drop a Shining reference? I could imagine Bobby, Bobby John working at the Overlook, uh, Overlook Hotel. <laughs> Well, sir, I think I will show you to your room <laughs> and death. <laughs> yeah, I just love that Bobby John knows The Shining. So there you go. It's one of the random references that Bobby John will make. I don't know. Yeah. I, that, that reference is pretty good. I mean, he could be saying, here's Johnny because he heard it. He probably doesn't even know where it came from. It's possible. I prefer to think that he's a learned man. He's a renaissance man. Okay, well. well he's, a big, he's a big Kubrick fan. <laughs> yes. Well, sir, I do like me some... Situational and atmospheric movie tension. <laughs> uh, but we we don't reach the end of the Gary Hawkins accusations as <laughs> well because uh, now Danny's there. <laughs> yeah, the same Dan- drive. <laughs> and now this is the moment we talked about before, where uh, Danny asked if he went to Central Michigan, and Gary replies with the always great retort, no, I, "Yeah, I went to Central Michigan, but I didn't play there." <laughs> And Danny's play- like, I'm, I'm still not completely sure he isn't lying. <laughs> I mean, I, mean, I threw a football in the quad, like, with yeah. my friends. Oh, yeah. No, I was on the football team, but I never started. Yeah, I never played. I was actually there. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. I love it. <clears throat> but, yeah, it's uh, just classic that they're on the same tribe now. And Danny, you know, she knows full well that he's lying, and she's just still needling him. 
<laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't imagine how many... I don't know if Danny just like let Sleeping Dogs lie or if she just like needled him behind the scenes for the next however many <laughs> days until he got voted out. Wait, don't you go home and have sex with Mrs. Hogaboom? Oh, yeah, I do that. But I'm not Gary Hogaboom. <laughs> Every night I'm having sex with her. <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm just a man whore. Exactly. Just man Fred Garvin, Hopkins. male prostitute. <laughs> Fred Garvin. Oh boy. Uh, so we're we're at New Nakum now, and a similar come come back from Margaret and Judd. Though Margaret, all Margaret can say is, "Oh my God!" But Judd has quite the opposite reaction. He's, he actually seems pretty fine with it uh, for a variety of reasons. And uh, Margaret, understandably, does not feel safe because right now they're tied 4-4. But I think Judd said his reaction to the, to the new tribe members was literally, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he had before, he had all the males on the tribe. He had Bobby, John, Brandon, Jamie, or uh, Blake and all them. What is it the word Judd says? They had the whole tosterone thing going Male on. Tosterone. Male, male, male tosterone. Male tosterone. <laughs> so he's the big guy now. He's the King Kong. He does his little beating on the chest that he's the big stud around Nakum. And then they immediately cut to the Howler Monkey doing the exact same noise, which is one of my favorite little cuts of the season. <laughs> Who knew Judd took his lessons from the things that annoyed him the most? <laughs> it's like Predator! <laughs> <laughs> so this is the scene that we talked about before where Steph and Jamie are sitting at the top of the pyramid and uh, they, they decide between them that they're going to make the push for Brooke, who apparently is uh, the weakest of the former Nakum members. Again, we have no idea this is true. Uh, we're just going to assume that it is. And uh, Judd sort of walks into the Godfather's office. And uh, I also, I love, um, I love Steph's logic on this. So, you know, Jamie's like, okay, we should, we should try to sway over Judd. And Steph's like, no, you know, we're both from Jersey. We know, we know a lot of the same things. Yeah, but are they both connected to the mob? What's going on? Here? <laughs> I have no idea. Like, are they going to bond over like, oh, that Christie, eh? <laughs> I'm sure they talk politics. I'm sure Judd and Stephanie spent a lot of time talking politics. But yeah, this is, again, I just have to give credit to Survivor just for this visual of people up on the pyramid overseeing all the little mortals below them. I just love that. Is there any other season that has anything like that? I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Uh, there is, there isn't like, um, there's some, you know, there's there's some shots of like Earl Island and in, in Fiji of him on top of Exile Island, or like in Blood versus Water when Aris is like sitting on that cliff on his own. It's it's the big shot while everyone's below him. They have little things like that, but not in like direct eye line like it is now. And they even cut to like Rafe striking up conversations with people while Steph and Jamie look on. Yeah, that's a bit. I use that visual a lot in one of my Alaska stories just because it's something I was always struck with. So it jumps out at me in this Guatemala. It's just really cool. And I use it a lot. You'll see it a lot in the season. So Judd joins the two of them at the top of the pyramid and they, and they think like, okay, we're going to have to work Judd really hard. But he he just immediately <laughs> just jumps on board. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm in. All right. What are we yeah. doing? <laughs> the cell was not that hard. No, not <clears throat> at all. Uh, and they, they just make the plan right there of like, uh, well, th- they... Stephanie and and Jamie come up with a fake plan to Judd of like, okay, we're gonna get rid of Brooke and then Lydia and then Margaret and Cindy. So then it'll be us four, and then we can tell Rafe whatever we want to do. Uh, so that's an interesting question for for Rafe. I don't know if you know that at this point of like, did he was that a fake plan or did he know that that ja- that Jamie and Steph were like they thought they were the heads of that alliance or or was he closer with them than they made out to be? He was always pretty close with Stephanie, he told me. Just because he liked hanging around her, she was a lot of fun, and he just knew she was never going to win the season because she was an outsider. So he said they were close, but they were never 
super close. It was when they got to this part of the game, he realized how necessary she was. So they became super close. From here on out, Rafe and Stephanie are two of the closest people. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Because uh, we yeah. didn't see too, too much of them bonding. We actually saw them a little bit in conflict. I think last episode, like Stephanie complains about losing the immunity challenge. Rafe's like, come on, be more positive. Yeah. And so it's it's I guess this there's one thing the switch does it's like solidify this oddly cobbled together alliance of like Steph Jamie Rafe and Judd yeah yeah that becomes the big one they're going to be the ones that are going to run the show for a while now and there's so, some more some more ju- great Judd yeah. quotes here yeah, go for it uh, I think he says like he has no problem targeting his previous tri members because he just wasn't he, I'm, not, I'm not I wasn't feeling the love man yeah no there, there's at least 85 more words in that sentence keep going uh, I know it ends with, uh, get, get out of my freaking jungle, man. Yeah. I have no problem targeting my old tribe. I never felt the love. I never felt the love, man. Get out of my jungle, man. Get out of my jungle now. Go home. Go home, man. <laughs> and there might have been a motherfucker in there. I forget. But yeah, yeah, it's just one big long rant. All in one breath. Classic Judd. I love it. And it seems like, it's, I, think he, I think he probably gained a second wind with having these new tribe <laughs> members here. And we'll, we'll see it later when he's like drinking the beers and he's like, again, he, like he said, he's, he's King Kong. He, you know, King Kong ain't got nothing on him. But like, I feel like this is like Judd's renewed spirit in the game. Because even, even though Margaret's on the tribe with him, he, he feels he's like indispensable. Yes, he is. He's the, only, he's the only like solid man in case there's another challenge where they have to pull <laughs> <laughs> try to pull the other tribe on a rope. Yep. Now that there's no more male tosterone, it's all him. Yeah. So speaking of male tosterone, uh, this is the <laughs> this next scene is the big uh, Bobby John Blake pee scene deal. <laughs> I love that scene. It just comes out of nowhere. I also love the fact that they don't show they're on a bathroom break until like Blake tells them in a confessional, like, yeah. So we were we were taking a piss, and yeah. uh, Bobby John said he's with me till the end. You can tell what they're doing if you pay attention, but the first time when it pops up, you don't really notice what's going on. It's like two guys talking with their backs to the camera. But then it turns out, yes, it is the famous double peeing confessional where Bobby John and Blake are talking while peeing. I also love that, like, they're also uncomfortably close to be peeing next to each other. (laughs) Yeah. I've been in in, uh, men's restrooms many times in my life, and... I've never been that close to a man in the urinal. It just no, doesn't happen. That's there, not what happens. There's an etiquette, right? Like, you know, you have the, the urinals on the wall, and it's like, you know, you always try to have, like, a, like, an empty urinal space in between you and somebody else, and, like, if there's just two of you, you go to, like, the exact opposite urinals in the room. Mm-hmm. Like, the, you you really do try to space yourself out, you know? It's, it's as it goes. They are uncomfortably close, and it's just... A lot of people try to say, like, hey, you know, what's the fundamental difference between men and women? You know, and, and people try to give you these things. And I think one of them is men would do this. Men would do, go on a piss break and have, like, a strategy conversation. Like, that's, <laughs> like, I'm not saying that's, like, something that I'm proud of, you know, my gender for or anything like that. But, like, story checks out. Like, the fact that they did this, I'm like, yeah, I believe it. <laughs> like, fucking Ghostbusters are crossing the streams yeah. and playing games yeah. as they're talking. Exactly. I can, I can only imagine how long they were out there just like shooting the shit. Blake was probably telling some stories about when he had to pee on something or someone. And then they're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, uh, we're good to the end. Okay, great. Bye. <laughs> so uh, they decide that their the, their current plan is to get rid of Amy, then Brian, then Gary. And we, we kind of get it. We get a short scene again of Amy showing off her ankle, with, uh, which obviously has probably not gotten any better but she again shows her badassery by saying like well i'm not i'm not gonna wince around anyone uh, i don't want i don't want to appear weak to anybody yep nope good for amy 
So let's get to the immunity challenge here. To start off, uh, Nakum has decorated the idol with yellow feathers, but part of me makes me think that like behind the scenes, it was they're like, okay, uh, Steph, go ahead, you can you can put you can put the feather on. I know you've only seen this thing once, but we're gonna make you. She's like probably like clutching it close to her chest, wanting to, to get some of its powers through osmosis. It was a, it probably was a fun activity for Stephanie to get to touch the the immunity idol for more than a day. Yes. <laughs> and this is the uh this is the war clubs challenge that you guys mentioned before it's basically paddle out get some bags throw some Maya, some mayan war clubs because authentic maya uh and throw the clubs at these targets that are 30 40 and 50 feet away jay and- give us a history lesson did the mayan used to do this um i actually don't know story <laughs> okay. checks out though uh as far as like throwing some sort of pila or projectile but it's just this challenge is just fantastic i i have a lot to say about this challenge go ahead mike set us up so uh there, there's only two caveats with this challenge that ends up coming into uh very big play in the second half which is one only one person can hit one target so once you hit successfully hit a target you're done for the rest of the challenge and b switching out is allowed but apparently from one tribe is not encouraged so Jay, if you want to, I know you. You said you have a lot of stuff to, to say about this challenge. If well, you want to, if you want to take it away, you gotta love. I think this is just, you know, Survivor casts people who are mainly Type A, and that, that's what you know creates a lot of the fun parts of this of this show. But like, this is again, I think that a lot of times people are strategizing, but at, at, at the other time, I think there's a lot of overthinking and underthinking going on at the same time. The first part of this challenge is they have to row a boat out there and get the get the uh the the uh the war clubs that are like in bags or whatever and what's funny is that like um i think it's it's steph's tribe it's it's the uh it's the new yasha tribe right or no the new the new nakum tribe like don't they take the lead right away yeah because the boat the boats hit and they just push the new yasha tribe off course they push new yasha off course and like they get a huge lead going into the thing but again it's stephanie has to be first and like throw the clubs and she's she takes a while you know what i mean and then she finally gets one and she's good and then the other guys come and then it's like judd's next and like judd's like he's not getting it and they're like judd take out and he's like no man i'm just gonna get this middle one real quick yeah real quick real quick and he keeps throwing and keeps throwing, and then finally Jamie gets in there, and it's like, man, if Jamie's your anchor leg on something, you're screwed because <laughs> he's terrible. So, like, you know, it, it's just a really fun exercise in this challenge because it's like, on the one hand, you're like, why didn't Gary go? <laughs> That's no, we don't do that in landscaping. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. I and I, and the thing is that I think Gary's like, well, I don't I don't want to give away my quarterbackness or something like that. So like he's overthinking, but it's like at the same time, maybe maybe, maybe throw. Like you've already established you're pretty good at, at things and challenges. So like just go out there and throw the flipping tomahawk. Like you don't have to be like set 1, set 2, 40x26 hike. Like you could just you could just go out there and throw the war clubs and I mean, you could probably show yourself a little bit better than, you know, Judd and Jamie. So it's like I think that Gary's overthinking the challenge, and then there are people like Judd that are underthinking it. You know, Judd's just like, I'm going to go, man, because I'm really good at damn challenges, man. And he's like throwing the war clubs, and he's not hitting it. And it's like, tag out, Judd. And he's just refusing to tag out. And it's like, that sort of stubbornness is going to lose you the day. 
it, it's funny when I was watching the challenge, it looks like Stephanie does a pretty good job. I mean, she gets up there and she hits it in about what the fifth shot maybe or something like that. Mm -hmm. But on her early show on the DVD, Brooke says, no, the reason, you know, Yasha or Nakum caught up to or Yasha caught up to us is because Stephanie, she goes, it wasn't Judd's fault. It looks like it's Judd's fault in the episode, but it was Stephanie. She said, Stephanie took over 30 tries to hit that and she wouldn't back down because she was Stephanie. She had to go first. How many clubs were in those bags? <laughs> I don't know, but that was what Brooke said. She goes, that's all Stephanie. She's the absolute worst team player you can ever have, and she's just not good at some things, and she won't accept that. So that's what, that was where she placed all the blame, and she goes, and they wouldn't show that on TV because they have to keep up this mystique that Stephanie's like this challenge goddess. But she goes, that's what cost us. It was all Stephanie. It wasn't Judd at all. Like They had already caught us by the time, and we had a huge lead, and it was all Stephanie that screwed up. So just something interesting there that the producers will do to kind of hide and keep Stephanie's mystique alive. Mm -hmm. Well, you can tell, because, I mean, you could tell they had a huge lead going from the, from the boat portion, right? Mm -hmm. And Stephanie gets her, her, uh, her target down before, in theory, Nakum had, had knocked down a target, but it's like they had such a lead, and Stephanie was still throwing when Nakum came in. And obviously, with the magic of, of television, they're not showing all the missed shots of Steph, but, like, if you're looking at the timeline, Nakum paddles into shore rather quickly uh, with all that sort of thing. And, and, and so in my head, when I was watching it the second time, I was unaware of, of uh, Brooke's early morning interview where she said this. But like in my head, I'm like, Steph didn't do well in this challenge. She took a long time to get that ta target down. Yep, absolutely. The pieces all line up. And it's one of those, the producers don't show you, but you can, you can pick it out. It's one of those you have to watch more than once to kind of catch that. The interesting thing is that this last matchup is once again Brandon versus Jamie. And I feel like we saw it before in the second episode, and we'll see it again in a couple of episodes with that multifaceted cart challenge. It always seems to be Brandon versus Jamie, and Brandon always seems to kick Jamie's ass. It's sort of like a, a Tom Bobby John situation from, <laughs> yes. from Palau. Just Jamie gets owned every single time by Brandon. Uh, and, but and there's also a fun moment after New Yasha wins where Judd just throws down his buff in frustration. <laughs> yeah. He's taking a lesson from Stephanie. Yeah, exactly. I, I think they, they really feed into each other. and they, they feed into the core of hatred, as Kathy yes. would put it. <laughs> but, but, but again, I know that you know, you're touting you know, the, the, the complexity that is Jamie Newton. But like, on the other hand, again, I, I say, why is Jamie bringing up the anchor? Like, Okay, I, I guess you can say in the in the in the mud challenge, he's the biggest dude, and you know he's the only one to go against Judd. But you know, again, take Gary's quarterbackness out of this. Gary is shown himself to be in the challenges, and he's on the tribe. He hasn't gone yet. Like, why is Gary not taking a stab at this? Like, why is it like he got the third one furthest away? Well, let's have Jamie go. Like, what has Jamie done so far that has instilled any confidence in anybody? Yeah. Want me to give you uh, something Rafe said about that? I don't know if this is the explanation, but one of the things that Rafe always said about Jamie was that he had a temper. Like, Jamie has a hair trigger, and he's oh, kind of sure. scary. Yeah. So they were all kind of scared of him. Like, they didn't want to anger him, and it was with Judd, too. He didn't want to anger Jamie or Judd because they would flip out, and they were unpredictable. So mm -hmm. I'm guessing it was one of those things. Jamie said he wanted to do it. Nobody wanted to tell him no because he would flip out. So that's just one, for one guess. Yeah, and that's probably the same reason why they didn't make Judd switch out after they kept asking him. Like, I think, and we'll see this when it gets to that double tribal council. Sooner or later, you just realize, like, all right, these guys are going to dig their own grave. Let's let them just have their way and, and talk and make them feel like they're the important people. And we'll, we'll have to suffer for a little bit. But at the end of the day, we know we're going to beat them. 
Yeah, I mean, I I totally buy that, Mario. I think that that is that's probably like one hundred percent the explanation is that you know Jamie was just volatile, and you know they just didn't really want to deal with you know his erupting at that point. But by the same token, then when everyone's like, well, you know that Jamie, you know he's playing this game and things happen, I'm like, well, Jamie can't win Survivor ever because he's not a, a challenge god and he's got so much of a hair trigger temper that people are just going to work around him and it's like you just can't play this game that way yeah so new yusha wins and uh, the new nakuma is going back to tribal council for stephanie rafe and lydia and uh and jamie this is the third consecutive trip for them obviously stephanie is beaten down more and more she's being down once more at tribal council but first uh the former nakum women they get together right after the challenge and they're like all right let's uh let's vote out for lydia for being the weakest uh this is the third time again that lydia's being targeted yet survives she's sort of a a guatemalan eliza if you will uh but this is there's a really fun scene coming up between margaret and judd and as as i mentioned before we get to see how judd is a horrible liar (laughs) or not a horrible liar as much as like he's just horrible at like creating a diversionary tactic to try to to try to convince someone that he has no idea what's going on you got my wheels turning man yeah like yeah he's like all right uh here's the plan is that we're gonna we're gonna vote off we'll we'll vote off brooke and then they promise they're gonna vote off lydia and margaret's like i don't understand that logic doesn't make any sense he's like no uh they're gonna go with strength so we should be good to go and margaret's like no you realize that they could, st- could still be in the minority and they'll keep you around for strength. And as you said, just like, oh, man, you gave me a lot to think about, Margaret. <laughs> My wheels are turning. <laughs> <laughs> Got these damn wheels in my head turning, man. They're <laughs> going around and around, man. Just damn wheels. Damn most annoying wheels ever. Most annoying wheels is just friggin' turning in my head, man. Uh. What does he Jad read Shakespeare? <laughs> Life is a damn walking shadow, man. <laughs> there you go for our literary listeners. There you I go. know a place where the friggin' wild time grows, man. Where damn ox lips and friggin' tulips blows, man. <laughs> so we get to tribal council, and like we said before, Jeff kind of starts off by saying, Steph, in both seasons, you're four for 21. And even before James Clement does this in nine seasons, he says, Are you cursed? <laughs> and One uh, voice, one voice, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god and uh she she points out that she's not though at this point i think it the case is definitely showing itself especially cons- again considering that record four for 21 over the course of two seasons is really uh it's pretty abysmal though again it's not i would say this challenge might be stephanie's fault but for the most part they're not <laughs> yeah look I, i'm a type b i'm a type b personality like i i am not a type a personality i would not be cast for survivor in a million years and I know it, but you know, assuming I were, I think I would have the clairvoyance at least to you know look at that and go, I am four for twenty-one in tribal challenges. I could be the problem. Yeah, and yet you know with you Stephanie, have so much heart. you have so much heart. I understand, but you know, then then Stephanie's like, you know, can't I just get a competent team for once? And you're like, Steph, you're the problem. <laughs> There's some guy on the Washington Generals making that exact same argument right now. We've lost to the Globetrotters 800 times in a row. Why can't I get a good team around me? (laughs) 
I always when I always think of the glo- the Globetrotters and the Generals, I just always think of that Simpsons where like Krusty the Clown and oh, like, yeah. bit and he's like he's spinning the ball on his finger. He actually just bids again. He, he bids against the Harlem Globetrotters. Yeah, he, he bids in the general. I love that he's watching. He's like he's spinning the ball on his finger. Just take it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh there's there's no big surprises that wasn't telegraphed halfway through this episode at tribal council judd he turns on his former tribe members and he votes out brooke they're voted out five to three and uh we we see the the last of the unforgettable women go i would argue that everyone from now on so i guess the final 14 are all above the ashley ashby line in terms of characters <laughs> i'm sure everybody remembers where they were when brooke struck was voted out <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I still argue of the three uh, women from uh, from this season that were forgettable, Brooke is the most. And it's a shame because she seems super nice in her interviews and stuff, but I can't remember a single thing about her. At least Morgan and Brianna, there's something distinct about them. There's nothing distinct about Brooke. She had a Pepperdine hat. <laughs> well, there you go. I, I take it back. There you go. All right, guys. So I think we're reaching about three hours now. Do you do you want to call it here, or should we should we move into talking about some Crocs, Cowboys, and City Slickers? I think we should probably call it here. We don't want to cross three hours on the first one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, plus, I will say that the, these uh, these first four episodes are interesting. I think as the time shows, we had a lot to dissect. There's a lot of big character scenes. I feel like Guatemala doesn't really pick up until episode five. And I remember at the time, episode five was heralded as a really, really great episode of Survivor. And even rewatching it now in preparation, I would agree. It's just, I think things start gelling together and we'll get into the double tribal council too. Uh, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff coming up in Guatemala and I'm, I'm excited we started this journey. Yeah, all the, all the storylines that I remember from the season, short of the, you know, Gary Hawkins stuff, everything that I remember from the season starts about right now. Like the Bobby John versus Jamie thing going on that starts right now some of the other big stuff the judd versus margaret add scene that's coming up so yeah it all kind of starts now the first four i mean they're good they've got some good character scenes there are some funny moments i love i always love stephanie and bobby john but yeah that's like you said the twist made the first three episodes pointless and this episode itself was kind of flat but it does all kind of start right now yeah the you have to think of the first like three episodes of the season as atmospheric mm-hmm you know, and now we're going to get into the meat and the bones of the season, and and I almost think that this season, this season, almost to me is like a uh, almost like a bell curve in in it, in the way it goes. Like I think it starts out not slow. I mean, I love the hike in, but again, like as far as like you know the the juicy parts of the season, like it starts out not super juicy, and then it gets really juicy, and then it sort of peters out. But I, I you know, riding this wave is 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 an interesting one. I. Upon rewatch, this is a very interesting season to to watch again, and uh, uh, I, I I sort of agree with with what's been said here. I like this season. I don't love this season, but I don't hate this season either. Like I like it. I think it's it's very solid, and and it has some merit. But it also does some things that we need to pause and, and analyze and question. And I think that we're definitely going to get there with all those things. Yeah, that, this is definitely, we're really getting into Survivor's awkward years. And we saw it a little bit in Palau, and we talked about this on the 10, uh, 10 Seasons Retrospective podcast, that like, this is when they're going to start throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. And this it definitely shows in this past episode, with the whole way the switch was done, how needlessly complicated it was. And, you know, in a few episodes, we'll see the, uh, the our little friend, the Hidden Immunity Idol, come out. And I know that becomes a huge 
factor in later seasons. And even in, in the double tribal council, they have this whole method of individual immunity and the voting. That's strange. So there's going to be a lot of fun stuff to talk about, but we will we'll call it here and uh, we'll be back soon to talk about some of these middle episodes of Survivor Guatemala. So for the Survivor Historians, I'm Mike Bloom. I'm Mario Lanza. And I'm Jay Fisher. And watch out for friggin' Predator. And we have Brianna, who's a makeup artist. After the first round, she's like this. Her head's completely up her butt. I have to literally pull it out. I'm like, dude, it's too early in the game. What are you doing? Then we have a fishmonger.